In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God's help, we are now up to part three of the series of talks on marriage, and uh, maybe there'll be another, maybe two or three to go. The topic is very important because, as you know, marriage has been fought, whether it's a same-sex marriage, whether it's divorce. Uh, whether it's um, people that believe you, that it was never meant for people to be um, only with one spouse, you meant to have a lot, and everything else that's in the media, all pointing towards moving away from what God's blessed. And unfortunately, they're so stupid that they can't see that they've made a mess of everything, and yet they still have their heads up high and still philosophize of what is a marriage, what is uh, sexual relations, what is this, what is that, and they've made a mess. But they're too proud to admit that they've made a mess. So, last talk, I read two things which caused some concern to people who heard it. And I'll repeat that. One of them was a little a letter that Elder Philothor Zervakos, who was a spiritual child of Saint Nectarius, the great saint that we did five talks on, and he passed away in 1980. He's considered a saint, even though he hasn't been formally canonised by Greece, by the Greek church yet. But in the, in the eyes of the Greek people who knew him, he's a saint. And he was a, a great spiritual father. Now, he wrote a letter to a woman who's having troubles with her husband. And I'll repeat the letter quickly. I saw your great sadness and the troubles which you are suffering from your husband. As your spiritual father, I sympathise with you and grieved for you. I advise you, if you want to be saved, to be patient. It is the advice of our sweetest Jesus Christ, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So he quotes from the Bible. Listen, my child, whatever your husband does to you, whether he swears at you or beats you or blasphemes, put up with him and pray and beseech God to enlighten him, to repent and to forgive him. Do not have malice towards him. And when, my child, you throw all your faith, hope and love upon God and continue being patient and praying, as Christ prayed for those who crucified him, God will receive your prayer and will deliver you from the great trial and affliction. You will be saved and you will be granted the kingdom of heaven. Now, in today's society that we live in, this seems to be wrong. And the next one I'm going to read, let's leave that for a minute, let's just ponder that one. The next one I'm going to read is actually 
in today's world worse. This is the life of Saint Thomas of Lesvos. Saint Thomas was born on the island of Lesvos, Mytilini, from pious and rich parents. Even though she desired to dedicate herself to God in the monastic life, her parents pressured her to marry at the age of 24 to a man named Stephanos. It turned out that this man was a very bad and violent person. Because of her religious life and because of her virtues, her husband beat her severely every day. Despite this, she did all in her power to assist the poor, the sick and the afflicted, even though this made her husband even more angry. However, she bore evil treatment with patience and prayer and equaled the martyrs in giving thanks to God for the blows and wounds inflict, uh, uh, inflicted on her. In return, God made her worthy of grace of healing, of the grace of healing, and driving out evil spirits. Her compassion extended especially towards prostitutes whom she led to conversion by curing their diseases. Saint Thomas gave back her soul to God at the age of 38, having borne the ill treatment of her husband for 13 years without a word of complaint and having served Christ daily. 40 days after her repose, a great many miracles began to happen at her tomb for those who came to it with faith. Her holy relics were uncovered, years later of course, and placed in a precious shrine inside the church of the monastery at which her mother was the abbess. Her body was incorrupt and on her precious hands could be seen the wounds from her husband. And she is regarded as one of the patron saints of the married life. Now, I read that last time and then where I found this, there was a, um, like a blog, those things that they write in, and, and some woman was very scandalised with that, with the life, and she wrote, this is where I left off last night, last time, this woman wrote in response to, to this website that put that life up, which is an Orthodox saint, why in the world did the Orthodox Church choose this saint as the patron saint of marriage? I usually love your postings. This one left me wanting more information. Thank goodness for the disclaimer, or I would have been completely unprepared for the patron saint of marriage to have been in a 13-year abusive marriage, dying at the hands of her barbaric husband. No, no, not inspirational today. So this woman wasn't inspired by the life. So how do we look at it? Now, many of you... Uh, shocked. Many of you, because of the influence of the media, feminism and all those type of things, uh, have a wrong view on many of the things of the church because the ways of the world is opposite to the ways of the church. Some similarities, but in general, they're complete opposites. The church's influence on people today is minimal. Most people have no influence at all from the church. But the influence from the media, from the internet, from books, from magazines, is basically at the highest level. And therefore, people who listen to an orthodox talk or read an orthodox book and they come across things like this, they become aggressive 
They become angry like the woman with the blog there. And some of you tonight also might become upset. Now, I have to warn you, I don't tolerate it. If you come, you come to listen. If you're confused, you ask in a humble way. You say, excuse me, um, that part that you just read, I find a little bit difficult. Humbly, you know, because always remember that our brains are limited in front of God's ways. And the poor scientists who think that they are gods, some of them, and they try to explain the universe. The more they try and explain the laws of physics, the universe, whether it's the laws of chemistry, the more they try to explain, the more that they realise that they know nothing. Because it's so limitless. So if they can't understand the created world, how can they understand God himself? And how can they understand God's ways? So today, what's necessary is humility. And without humility, God does not give any light. God enlightens the humble. And those who are proud, they become darkened. They lose grace. When I first came to the church, and even now, but I, you know, I, wasn't, I wasn't brought up in the church from young, I read some things which caused me to be disturbed because I didn't understand because I was brought up in a worldly way. So when I read these things, I said, what does that mean? But what I did was I said, well, what do I know? I'm I'm a blind bat. How do I know what these things are? There must be an explanation. And today, even to today, I will tell you, as I was even researching for this talk today, When I started reading about second marriages and third marriages, I became confused. But what does that mean? That means that the church is wrong because little old me is confused. No, it means that I didn't understand at the time. After a lot of research and asking questions, I found out more about it. So humility. So don't react. If you react, it's not going to be good. So what I did when I read this last Um, time, we ran out of time in the last talk, which I was glad because I didn't really know how how I'm going to explain it. What do we do? Are we saying that um, uh, bashing a wife is good? I had to think about it and as you know, the last talk was over four or five months ago and during that time I read, I spoke to people and thought about this topic quite a lot. So I wrote a letter to a monastery in Greece, near Athens, who do a lot with people. And the, one of their senior clerics said, he sent me back, uh, he sent back a letter. And I said, uh, we, we wrote in that letter to him and said, how do, you, how do we explain to the faithful this type of thing about this woman, this woman who became a saint? That, does that mean that we should encourage women or men, because men get bashed too, by the way, maybe not as much, but they still do. Um, Men might use their fists, but women use pots and pans and other objects, so it doesn't mean that it's one's less than the other. And if they can't use pots and pans, they just pay someone to kill their husband. So there's all these different things that happen. Let's see what he says. Here I think we should distinguish two things. Firstly, the abuse St. Thomas underwent was for her own sanctification while at the same time for the condemnation of her barbarous husband. 
this is so of all who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because obviously she was persecuted. Her husband did what he did to her because she was in the church and he didn't like that. Secondly, her conduct is superhuman, surpassing normal human capacity. And just as the ascetic achievements of the saints are presented for our instruction, though they are not for everyone to try out, so her patience is clearly above what most people could endure. What does he mean by the ascetic, uh, where, where this? the ascetic achievements of the saints? Well, we read there, as we're going to read later on, Elder Paisios and other saints and elders, what they, what they went through, what suffering some of them had diseases that they wouldn't go to a doctor. And they suffered a lot. Some of them, we read in the lives of saints that were captured and had opportunities to escape, but they didn't. Others did escape, but some didn't escape and they stayed there. Today is the memory of St. John the Russian, whose relics are on the island of Evian, Greece. His master, he's the Turkish master, actually offered him later on to come in the house because he did a miracle and they were impressed and they told him don't, because they had him in the stables with the horses and with the other animals and they offered him to come out and he said no. We have saints that ate once every three days, some once every 40 days. We have saints that didn't sleep in beds. We have saints that lived in the cemetery and were attacked by demons. They induced. We have saints, they actually brought on those temptations. Not for us. We have saints that became fools for Christ. What does that mean? That they acted silly. They acted like fools so that people could make fun of them, hit them, persecute them, and we know that that's not, we're not, us not, not supposed to do that. But yet, they had a calling. See, all these saints had callings. They didn't do it from their own will, but they did it as they were inspired by God. This particular woman was inspired by God to stay where she was. However, we have other examples, which unfortunately I couldn't find. That's why hopefully those who listen to the talk, or some of you, I, didn't, I just didn't have time to go through the whole lives of saints. I have read in the past some women who were persecuted by their husbands and left. They ran off and became saints. So we have some that stayed, became saints. We have others that left and became saints. We have other examples of uh, women who would pretend that they were men and go and live in men's monasteries they were, because they might have been persecuted some of them ran away from their husbands and what happened was so that the husbands don't find them they, and there was no women's monasteries around and plus the husbands might go there to find them. They would dress up as men and pretend that they were uh, men that didn't have beards and they would live in monasteries with men. So obviously there would be temptations there as a woman with men and that would be something that you don't put yourself into and yet they did. And when they were later on accused of making someone pregnant 
and all the monks would go against them and say, how did you do that, and why did you do that, and such a scandal. You know, you're a, you're a monastic, you're, you're a, a father of this monastery. And all she had to do was to say, I couldn't have made her pregnant because I am a woman, but she didn't. So a lot of them didn't, and they, they actually kept it secret, and they only discovered that they were women when they washed their bodies at the end for the funeral. But others did reveal themselves and say, it wasn't me, because of such and such. So there are all these different scenarios, and it depends on God's inspiration as well. Now let's go on with what he wrote here. Great ascetic achievements are not for us. Personally, I have known one woman who went through exactly what she did with astonishing patience. She knew she had the right to leave her husband. Uh, he's saying according to church law, she could leave her husband, but we'll come to that later. Not only by, by civil law, but also of that of the church. So by civil law, she could have left. And by the church, she could have left, with what he's saying. But did not do so until the very end. On the other hand, he continues, nowadays we see wives abandon their husbands, or the opposite, he said, men abandon their wives, on the completely frivolous grounds of a hard word spoken, in anger or drunkenness. To such people... St. Thomas's patience is a just reproach, like a reprimand. Meaning that that should put those people to shame, whether men or women who left their spouses over some trivial matter. He, he, when he came home, it was my birthday and he didn't remember and he didn't give me a kiss on the cheek and I left him. Or the opposite. I came home, I was tired, and she forgot to cook for me, so I left her. You might say, oh, that sounds silly. But this is how it all begins. That's little type of things. Nor should we, of course, believe that cruelty is limited to that of husbands to wife. The opposite, though less common, is well known though it's more often psychological than physical. What he's saying is, do not think that abuse is only of, from, um, a woman endures abuse from, from a man. He says the opposite is also there, but not as common. However, usually, as he just said now, women don't bash their husbands, but they torment them psychologically. Women have the ability to make a man jump off a cliff. When they divorce, they use children as a way to make the other person to, to, to torment them. I used to c confess many, many years ago a young woman who said to me that she was bashed by her parents really badly and she was also psychologically abused. They would put her down, I wish we, you know, we really wanted a boy, not a girl and all these type of horrible things. And... When she would uh, cry about it, I said, why are you crying? And she goes, I didn't, I'm not crying over the physical, the psychological. That's what killed me the most. The physical, they did it, it, that was it. But the psychological is what really hurt me. So don't forget that physical is bad, 
But it doesn't mean that psychological isn't bad as well. And psychological could be from both ways, but usually the women use the psychological, the men use physical. Both are bad. Now that letter that this, that this clergyman wrote sounds good, but let's see, that's what he wrote. It's always good to check with, is it correct? Is it true that she can divorce? But didn't Christ say that only for adultery that one's allowed to divorce? What does the church say? What do the saints say? What do the elders say? Is this man a saint? Well, but he gave, he wrote, and we can examine it. But before I do that, I'm going to read something from the new book of um, Elder Paisios, which we bought a box of them. This is the new book. They say that this book is the, is the best written. It's Elder Paisios of Manathos by Hiramank Isaac, who was a spiritual child of Elder Paisios. He lived some... Elder Paisios' house was, say, there, and then he lived further down in, in another, one, another uh, house, which I remember when I went a few times to visit. I, I remember him. He's actually Arabic, Arabic Orthodox, but he learned Greek. And um, he wrote this book, or most of it. I think he died before the other ones, his spiritual children, maybe finished it off. This book is excellent, and I recommend it. You can buy it here, or you can buy it from bookshops. doesn't matter as long as you buy it. Now, from there I took one thing which I read, because I've, I've been reading it, because I just got it recently. I've been reading through it, and I came across this. And as soon as I came across this, I said, oh, this is interesting. I think this is going to help me with this talk about St. Thomas, the bashings and the sufferings and things like that. Let's see what it says. It says, Elder Pais just related the following story about the time when he was a monk at a monastery on Mount Athos. There was a brother at the monastery, a carpenter, whom the fathers had to accept because they didn't have a single woodworker, even for easy jobs, although they used to have seven carpenters at the monastery. So at the monastery, they have, all, they have needs of different skills. And this particular monastery had need of carpenters. Back in the old days, they used to have seven, and now they had none. So they accepted this particular person in their monastery because he was a carpenter even though he was uh, not suitable one can say he wasn't a very uh, we'll see in a minute anyway we'll see they really needed him so they cut him a lot of slack and he let it go to his head so he would do things that were not right he was disobedient and the monks kind of said, if we say something, and he might leave, and we need the things, which is not a good attitude, by the way. But anyway, that's what they did. They actually were compromising with him, not being strict. And um, because they let him go and they weren't reprimanding him, it went to his head that he can do whatever he wants. Then they even made him member of the abbot's council. So they even gave him a position of seniority in the monastery. And after that, he couldn't care less about anyone's opinion. Like today in the church. We, the, the church, unfortunately, has need of helpers and they make people who are a lot of times inappropriate. Make them... Um, um, what do you call this? Um, 
the ones that help in the church to blow out candles, some of them, some of them are, not, are not appropriate even to do such a job like that. It goes to their head, they become so proud and they cause a disaster. Chanters, the same thing. They become proud and they believe they, 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 not, they don't listen to anyone. I have a different attitude, of course. Um, I cut them down. I, I, I can't do that. That's me. But I haven't got a parish. I suppose it's easy. If I, suppose if I had a parish and I needed help, maybe I would have to endure it. But per personally, I don't like it. Brothers would go to him so they could learn the trade of carpentry, but none of them could stand him for more than a week. So the, the abbot would say, OK, you go to learn from this man. They'd stay a week because he was so aggressive and used to shout and scream. They said, we can't do it. So they would leave. And the abbot said, OK. By the grace of God, Elder Paisio says, I was able to stay on for two and a half years with him. I can't even tell you what I went through, but it was so beneficial for me. The continuously swearing and yelling carpenter couldn't see well. He had an eye problem. When he told me to do something that I could see was a mistake, something we would have to fix later on, if I dared to say anything, he would yell at me. You, you, still didn't, you still don't get it, he said. You'll answer me, bless or let it be blessed, which is the way monastics answer. When you give an order to a monastic, they say, bless, let it be blessed. And this person was so high in himself, he said, that's all you say to me. You don't talk back. So he was telling other Paisius, you say, bless, let it bless, no contradiction. Whatever I tell you, you do. I kept my mouth shut, said the elder. Things came out all wrong. We had to patch up the windows we made for the church. When the fathers asked questions, I didn't say anything. He didn't tell the fathers that it was his fault because he's half blind. He was part of the monastery council and he, and he could have owned up to the truth if he had wanted to. In the meantime, I was able to put some money aside, spiritually speaking, he says. I would be spitting up blood. Money aside means spiritual money. So we only think of physical money. 50s, 100s, 200s, investments, interests, etc. That's what we think. That's what, that's what we think life's about. But uh, if we're spiritual, we say, how about spiritual interest? How about putting some money in our spiritual bank? And what does that mean? Well, let's see what he says. I would be spitting up blood from being ill and he would be yelling, what are you doing? Work. I don't care if you die working, he said to him. So even though he saw him bleeding, coughing up blood, because the, the elder had a lot of sicknesses. When my condition worsened, the doctor said I needed to stay two months in the monastery hospital. The carpenter monk came to the hospital and yelled at me. He said, get to work. There's nothing wrong with you. I was obedient and set out for the mountain where he would chop down, where we, where we would chop down chestnut trees and square off the wood. So the, 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 the mad monk would tell him, get up, and off we go. We're going to go into the, into the forest and cut wood, because we need wood. Didn't care that he was sick. Sounds a bit similar to Elder uh, Tomais's husband, but anyway. I didn't go by the road, but by a less travelled trail, so that the other fathers wouldn't see me and make trouble for the older monk. So he didn't go openly on the road. He went... A, a, a more secretive way because if the monks saw him they would say where are you going you're supposed to stay in bed you're sick 
And then if he told them, oh, but Father so-and-so, the carpenter told me to go, then he would get in trouble. And the elder didn't want the carpenter to get in trouble. I never held a bad thought about this brother. I thought that God was allowing this situation out of his love for me so I could redeem myself for some sin. See how the saints think? We all have sins, sins that we know and sins that we don't know because we forgot or we don't, we don't even think they're sins. And the, saints, and the elders said that we have to pay off some of these sins through suffering. This is God's love towards us. So there I was paying off these sins. We must remember that Elder Paisius' obedience was not to the abbot, but to an older monk whose difficult character he patiently and joyfully endured. All he had to do is say something and, the, and, the, and he would have got in trouble with the carpenter, but he didn't say anything. That was his choice. Other monks did. They said, I can't, I can't take him. Does that mean they, they're going to go to hell because they didn't take it? When Elder Paisios' supervisors saw that the windows were crooked and came to him to complain, he didn't justify himself by saying that it was how the other monk had told him to do it. He kept quiet and endured their unjust accusations as if it really were his fault. But see, today, all of us, including me, when someone blames us for something, we have to justify ourselves. No, but it wasn't because it was you know, all these things that we do. Why were you late? Oh, because there was traffic and where was the traffic? Um, I can't remember. Um, where was the traffic? I want to ring up and find out uh, uh, in my head. They made it up, in other words. So all the time, people like to make excuses. It's very difficult. And as time goes on, people are becoming more and more egotistical, which is one of the reasons why marriages break up. People can't endure much. They can't admit faults. Even little things. So this is a good example for us. Obviously, I'm not saying that people should put themselves... You know, if someone came up to me and said, there's a, there's a guy at work who I work for, or whatever, or a, or a woman that I work for. One, I had an example of a, of a woman who was working for another woman who was, who was horrible to her and psychologically tortured her until she left. But anyway, if someone's going through those things, a lot of times I say, okay, let's see if you can endure. And then you, the, spirit, the, the, the priest looks and sees whether this person's going to lose their soul in that situation, whether it's going to do them any good or better for them to leave. But sometimes when it's trivial things and we want to leave work or leave our husbands or leave our wives or leave our whatever, then we have to think to ourselves, let's look at these examples and see how much they endured. That's why the church offers us these examples. In the, in the talks that I did a few years ago, uh, talks um, 40, 41, 42, 43, all those in the 40s there, I actually said that what, when we read ancient books of the elders and saints, of the miracles that they did and of their virtue, we don't try and imitate, because a lot of those people were so progressed, if we try to imitate them to that, to that level, we'll fall into deception. 
The fathers say, read them, stand in awe and humble ourselves and say, look at them, look at me. So that when we get proud of little things, we can say, well, what have I really done? Look what they've done. So that's why it's always good to read uh, these type of lives of saints, especially when you read this book when you, and, other, and other elders and lives of saints. You see how much virtue they had and how much we have, which is basically not much at all. So Elder Paisius continued, in the end, he said, in the end, since I had benefited so much from this brother, God worked things out for him. He went completely blind and was humbled before everyone, thus finding his salvation. He not only made me spit up blood, he also made me into a human being. Now, am I saying people to get in that situation? No. Well, what I'm saying is, in a marriage, someone could have a difficult spouse, and people suffer with difficult spouse. We read that last, last time from the saints. They say that when you have a difficult spouse, uh, it's like a martyrdom a lot of times. And if you endure, then fruits come from that. You pay off some sins. And not only that, through the patience, through one's patience, they can also save the difficult person. In this case, as Elder Basis was saying here, it all came out. The man went blind. God gave him an opportunity to be humble. He, humble, he became humble and died and was saved. So the question now is, what does Christ, what does St Paul, most of the epistles are by St Paul, what do they teach about divorce? So I'm going to read now what St Paul says. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, I read this in the first talk, talk 54. That was the first talk. I read that and I said, we have to look at this. As time goes on in these talks, we're going to have to answer these questions. So what does it mean by, but, if, but, if she, but even if she does depart from her husband, let her remain unmarried. Well, how can she remain unmarried if she's married or be reconciled to her husband? The unmarried means separated. Let her remain separated. Don't seek divorce. Time out, in other words. Remain unmarried. So even St John Christum says that because sometimes you just need that break and then uh, you can be reconciled. But people don't go to the... That any, they don't even say, look, I need a break. That, that, you know, for example, say someone's disturbed, dangerous, it's got problems, they're dangerous to the children. You don't have to say, oh, I'm going to leave you. You can say, look, you need to be separated because you're dangerous, you've got problems. Well, like, you need to get help, but you can't do it here because you're putting 
the children or whatever in danger. So therefore, there's a separation. A lot of times, things can work out that the person might have had a problem mentally. And I've seen situations like that. But today, we, we, we pass that step. You see, what it is is problems, you jump straight to divorce. There's no in-between. Matthew 5.31-32. Now, what, these are Christ's words. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whosoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, in other words, um, adultery causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery now I'm reading what the Bible says because we're not Protestants we don't read the Bible and say I can interpret the Bible myself even though it sounds clear you can't divorce your wife. And if you do divorce your wife and she marries someone else, it's you are making her to commit adultery. And the person who falls with or goes with her commits adultery. So this one looks very strict, absolute. But what do we do? We put our heads down. And in humility, we say, well, it doesn't mean what I read is what it is. As Orthodox Christians, we have the Holy Fathers who have interpreted the Bible. They were pure, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They, had, they from their purity, interpreted the Bible they offered that interpretation to the church, as to St John Christum and many others, and then it was up to the church to accept or reject it. One such person is Blessed Theophilact, where we have his books. Can you show me so I can see? These books, which, um, as I mentioned a few years ago, just one, it doesn't matter. Um, as I mentioned a few years ago, when I first came to the church, I actually um, found this book in Greek. And it said, and I understood it was the interpretation of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Epistles. So I started to read it, but my Greek's no good. So I couldn't really understand it. And I go, oh, I'm so upset. I wish I could understand that book. And lo and behold, not, not due to my wish, but. Lo and behold, the books were produced in English. So, I always advise people to always purchase a set of these books. That's what I do. So, when I read something, straight away I go to the interpretation so I can get an idea of what's being said. I don't try and interpret myself. So, if someone asks me a question tonight where Christ says this or in the Bible where it says that, what do you think that means? Because my name's not Luther or some other Protestant name, I say I don't know what it means. If I know, if I've studied it, then I'll tell you. 
But if I don't, which is most of, which most of the Bible, I don't know what it means, 99.999% of it, I actually then say, I've got to look that up. And now they've already um, translated um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I think they've just finished Romans and I think they're up to Ephesians. So slowly, slowly they're doing it. And to me, that's a, 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 all Orthodox Christians need to have that. Do not try and interpret the Bible yourself. Let's see what Blessed Theophilac writes on this particular line. He says, The law concerning divorce was spoken in response to the hardness of heart of the Hebrews, so that if a man hated his wife, he might have the authority to divorce her in case something worse occurs. For if he hated her, he might kill her. For they were murderous and bloodthirsty, the, the Hebrews at the time, and did not spare those closest to them, but sacrificed even their sons and daughters to, to the demons. They had mixed up with pagan practices and they lost themselves completely. And therefore, Moses said that if they're killing their own children, they're not going to have much trouble killing their spouse. So he, he um, allowed them to give a certificate of divorce. Let's go on. Moses also commanded that the husband give the divorced woman a writing of divorcement. By this writing, she could no longer return to him, thus preventing the confusion that would result if she did so and he was now living with another woman. So not only so they so Moses allowed the man to write a certificate and say, I don't want you, and that certificate also says that she can't come back. Once she's gone, she's gone. Because if she tries to come back and he's already got someone else, it's going to cause confusion. Such was the coarse and imperfect, na imperfect nature of the law. For then it was the time for this kind of law given. So in those times, that's what, that's what the law was because the people were off. But now, Blessed Theophilact is saying, there is need for another law more perfect teaching, that of Christ, which says no, no certificates and things like that. Let's go on. Christ does not abolish the Mosaic decrees, but corrects them by making the husband fearful of hating his wife without a cause. If he divorces her with good cause, that is, if she committed adultery, he is not condemned. So if a man divorces his wife because she committed adultery, then Christ says, that's okay. But I say to you that it is good to divorce as an adulteress a wife who has committed fornication, but if one divorces a wife who has not committed fornication, he becomes in part the cause of adultery for her if she should marry again. So if you separate from your wife, Christ is saying as he was teaching, and that woman marries someone else, then you're making her to become an adulteress, even though it's not her fault. And he that takes her is also an adulterer. So if a woman is told to leave and another person comes and marries her, he would be classified as an adulterer. For if he had not taken her, she would have returned and submitted to her husband 
So it says here, for a Christian must be a peacemaker towards others and even more so towards his own wife. So God said, blessed are the peacemakers. So if Christ is ordering the people to be peacemakers, then how much more should people be peacemakers with their own spouse? Now, the study Bible, the Orthodox study Bible, which is also very good, and I found some notes in there. They don't, they don't explain everything, but there's some notes. It says here, in contrast to the easy access to divorce under the Mosaic law, and because of the misuse of divorce in that day, Christ repeatedly condemns divorce and emphasises the eternal nature of marriage. Now, what happened was that Moses gave that law so as to protect women of being killed, and then later on, the men of those times took advantage of that and would separate for little reasons, stupid reasons, or because they like someone else. And Christ came and said, no, that's not right. That's, that was not the intent of that law. The intent of that law was meant to protect so women wouldn't be killed. That was the intent of the law, not that for, for the... As you say in Greek, which is the, the, most, the most insignificant thing that someone says, I don't want you anymore, goodbye. So Christ says that marriage is eternal, unbreakable. The possibility of divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality shows that marriage can be destroyed by sin. So, yes, marriage is eternal, unbreakable, but. Christ chooses that sin and says that is a sin that can break a marriage, adultery. Now that happened in chapter 5 earlier on. Now in chapter 19, the, the, the Pharisees came and this is what happened. And great multitudes followed him, meaning Christ, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? The interpretation says, when the mindless Pharisees saw the miracles that Christ was performing, they should have believed in him, but instead they put him to the test. They, never, they didn't have very good hearts. So they weren't say, oh, this person... He's a holy person. Look at the miracles he's doing. No, instead they make attempts to trap him. Oh, what mindlessness, like what stupidity, says St. Theophilac. They thought they would confuse Christ by their question, for if Christ said it was lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason, they would say to him, why then did you earlier say, which I, which I, which I just read, let not a man divorce his wife unless she only be an adulteress. But if he said that it was not lawful for a man to divorce his wife, they would slander him as a lawgiver opposed to Moses. So if he said it's okay to divorce, then they go, oh, we caught you out. You said earlier on that you can't divorce unless it's for adultery. And if he said to them... Um, no, you can't divorce except for adultery, then they would say, oh, we caught you out. You're going against Moses. For Moses had commanded that if a man hated his wife, 
he should divorce her even without reasonable cause. Deuteronomy 20, chapter 24, line 3. And he said to them, Christ, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Christ is saying here, this is the way it was from the beginning. It was meant a man and a, fe- and a, and a, and a female, male and female, leave their parents and become one. And they are not to be separated. The Japanese, as you know, they're into whales. And um, there's a whole big uh, battle there in the, in, in the oceans where some Australians come up and try and stop it and throw these stink bombs on their boats and they do things back to them. And what they do is, because the Japanese want the whale, and they harpoon the, the whale. They harpoon them, kill them, and then take them on their boats and take them back to Japan and cut them out for food. This teaching, which says, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two but one flesh, male and female, that to the gay lobbyist is like you're harpooning them. And that's why they hate Christianity. Male and female. When, what then does Christ say? He shows that monogamy is the work and law of him who created us at the beginning. That's what God wanted from the beginning. For at the beginning, he says, God joined together one man and one woman, so it is not right that one man should be joined to many women or one woman to many men, which is what they're saying today. That's the new thing now. Now remember Hollywood is similar to... My parents used to have a shop at Bondi where this water would be coming out and going into the ocean. I never knew in those days what it was. It was sewerage. So the sewerage would go through there and out into the ocean. That's Hollywood. That's the same as the sewage which comes from them. Why do I say that? When they have an agenda, they use their films. They're very powerful. The earlier films were on abortion. That helped to pass the, the law in 1972 or three for abortions because they showed these films of these women who wanted abortions and they would go to these backyard people and get infected and then get, get thrown in front of a hospital and die, etc., etc., etc. And they did all that. Then they did the... the, the then they're, now they're doing these new films, these new things about people that want to change their, that change their gender. There's all films about that. There's films about gay marriages. There's films about um, uh, uh, people who... There's nothing wrong with having multiple partners. They have an agenda. They produce their films and change people. They don't just change Americans. They change whoever has access to their films. So therefore, people have been brainwashed 
because with the nice music and the sadness and it's all like emotional and uh, what was the one that was one the other day um Uh, they want to make it so that girls can have abortions by, if, without getting parental consent. And in some states they're doing that in America. So what they did is they produced the film in which uh, the, the girl in her state couldn't do it. So she came to New York where there they have a law that she can without the permission of the parent. But she was so many weeks and she was two weeks under the number of weeks which after that yeah, they, they, they're not allowed. I think it's after six months pregnant. So up to six months they can do it, which is, um, anyway. So uh, what happened was that the, the abortion clinic that she went to, the family planning clinic that she went to, the doctor said, you've got an infection and we can't do anything because it's dangerous. And then later on he goes, Guess get well. And so she was getting, she was get, when she got well, which was still under the 26 weeks, I forgot the number of weeks, 24 I think, um, they wouldn't answer her call. And it turned out that that particular family clinic was pro-life. So what they were doing is they were delaying her of coming to have an abortion so it can pass over the law. And what happened was that because it passed over the law, then it showed this nice music and all emotional and showed her that she got her boyfriend to help her to, to punch her in the stomach and that she punched herself in the stomach. And it was all these, all these things. And, not, and at the end... The, the culprit was the doctor. So that's, that's the law, you see? So they just produce films. And unfortunately, if I can be rude, I don't mean to be rude, but sometimes you've got to be rude to be thinking, and some of you are stupid enough to let your children watch those things. And even some of you watch, watch them and are influenced. You've got to be careful because it's becoming so bad now that people have become insensitive to what is, what is wrong. What used to shock someone years ago does no longer shock anyone. Euthanasia. And euthanasia, that's right, sorry, that's another one. That's another, they're doing a lot of films on that now because what do they want? They want to pass that law. They've got a mania to pass that law. So they're producing the films. The, whole, the sewage is producing in Hollywood. People are growing now, 20, 25, 30, 35, and saying, oh, I don't want to get married because I don't want, I see so many bad marriages, I don't want to be put in the same situation of winding up with someone who I don't like. And some say, well, come what may, I'll marry. If I don't like them, I just divorce. Today, that's where we're going. Of course, there are some exceptions we're going to come to soon, but... People are going to marriage saying, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And the church is, this, is um, experiencing a disaster in Greece, everywhere. Priests are pulling out their hair. Bishops are, are shocked because it's 50, 60% divorce and second marriages and third marriages and who knows. And just a little note, I wrote here today, people know that they have a choice to divorce. If things don't go well in the marriage, as I already said, it's very easy today to divorce. However, if they knew God's mind, in other words, if they knew that God abhors, hates divorce, perhaps this would make them change their destructive attitude. People need to know that. That's what marriage is. Now, I strongly urge 
that if people do not read the Bible every day, even just a little bit, again, I don't mean to be blunt, but there's no light. That's what the saints say. Without spiritual reading, there's no salvation. People need to read the Bible and the lives of saints a little bit every day. Now, some of you, do you miss breakfast? Maybe some of you do for weight reasons, but in general, we eat and we eat every day. That's for the body. The soul also needs food and spiritual food is the only way the body, the soul is uh, enlivened. Spiritual food, prayer, reading, the mysteries of the church, Holy Communion, in other words, confession, they're all spirit, that's all spiritual food. Without that, the soul starves. Today, the main cause of these depressions and problems in the world, even though they do come from other reasons too, like abuse and things like that, but the main reason is souls that are starving spiritually. So feed your souls. All of us need to feed our souls. Now, what does the church teach on divorce and remarriage today? I want to, I'm going to read to you what do some of the churches say. So I went on there and I found on the one website, which is called the Orthodox Church of America, which they call over there the OCA, someone asked a question there to a priest. What is the church's stance on divorce? How many times may one remarry? Are there differences in the service? So I read to you Christ's teachings to the letter. Now we're going to see what's been said today and later on I'm going to move on to what the ancient church taught because sometimes what they teach today might not necessarily be proper and we're also going to read what the elders say, the modern elders that live in our times. So his answer the Orthodox Church recognises the sanctity of marriage and sees it as a lifelong commitment. So, so far, that's the same as what Blessed Theophilact interpreted. However, there are certain circumstances in which it becomes evident that there's no, there's no love or commitment in a relationship. Now, we're starting to go a little bit to the side here. Unlike Christ's teaching and Blessed Theophilact's interpretation for adultery, here, this particular person saying, uh, but sometimes it's obvious that there's no longer love or commitment in a relationship. While the church stands opposed to divorce, the church in its concern for the salvation of its people does permit divorced individuals to marry a second and even a third time. The order of the second or third marriage is somewhat different than that celebrated as a first marriage and it bears more of a penitential character. In other words, the service is more sorrowful, more of repentance because of the ending of the first marriage. Some of the more joyful aspects of the first marriage are removed in the second and third marriage. So the first marriage, there's glory, beautiful service, joyful in the second and third marriages 
that element, a lot of those is not there. It's more of a prayers of repentance. Repentance for what? Well, the fact that they're getting married second time. And why do they have to repent of that? Because Christ said there's only one marriage. Second or third marriages are performed by economy. So we're going to hear this word a lot tonight, economy. That is, out of concern for the spiritual well-being of the parties involved and as an exception to the rule, so to speak. So economy, when the church exercises economy, it does so out of concern for the spiritual well-being of the parties involved. One can say that Moses exercised economy in that he knows that God made male and female and the two became one, but yet he allowed them to give a certificate out of economy so as to avoid a greater evil being killings and things like that. But let's, let's see, that's my part of it. I'll just put that in. But number two question. But unless I'm mistaken, says the person, Jesus said that unless the divorce is, become, is because of adultery, the divorcees cannot remarry. Because Christ said what? And whoever marries one who is divorced is an adulterer. So this person is taking Matthew chapter 5, line 31 and 32, and said, that's what I read in the Bible. What do you have to say, Father, about that? Answer. Of course I'm aware that Christ's scriptural command admits adultery as the only reason for divorce. So the priest is acknowledging that's correct. The question that I had answered involved the contemporary practice, that's today, of the Orthodox Church rather than the scriptural command. I have been a priest for nearly 25 years, the priest is writing here on the, on the website, I have seen quite a number of couples seek divorces. I have never seen a case that did not involve adultery. Whether it be a case of giving oneself over to another person or another thing, such as alcohol, drugs, work, etc., one can surely put their spouse in a secondary position as a result of becoming infatuated or obsessed with another person and or controlled by another person, one can also surely put their spouse in a secondary position as a result of becoming infatuated or obsessed with power, wealth, addictions, careers, etc., and being controlled by these. So, he says, yes, Christ does say that. It's only for adultery. And then he says, I'm not saying that I agree, I'm just saying what he said. He said, well, people can also commit adultery in other ways where they worship or not, not necessarily another person, but also it can be alcohol or gambling or their work or whatever and just don't take any notice of their family at all, completely leave their family. And he says that that also can become a cause for a divorce. That's what he's saying. He actually even says, but in the 25 years as a priest that he's had to do with divorce, he says they all have adultery in it anyway, whether it is with another person or alcohol, drugs, work, etc. That's how he interpreted it. In the answer that was given, the principle of economia was being 
emphasise. So he's saying that it's out of economy that the church allows it not only for adultery, like straight adultery, but also for other reasons such as the things that he just said, when people make gods or, in, or become have the centre of their life, not their spouse. Okay, then I went on to another website, which was the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America, and the question was asked there. The question is, is when and why did the church first allow divorce and remarriage? Answer, the Orthodox Church permits its faithful to divorce because it maintains that marriages can and do die. That's how they can explain it. In these cases, the Orthodox Church acknowledges this tragic reality and argues that the worst, the worst of two evils is that the couple remain in a destructive relationship that can have a, de a, um, a disastrous effect on all family members religious, spiritual, psychological, emotional and physical well-being. Didn't mention adultery, but he just says that um, the reality is that that's what happens in today's world and that um, you've got two evils to choose between, the evil of divorcing or the evil of staying in the marriage and causing all this destruction. That's how he's going. Now, I've got a little note here. Uh, he then goes on, which I didn't put in there, he goes on to explain how over the centuries the church increased the number of reasons for divorce. The Holy Fathers actually, in, uh, over the centuries, increased the list of why a people can divorce. It didn't just stay on the adultery. The Holy Fathers decided that to go further on the list. Now, some of you might say, but aren't they going against Christ? Well, we'll have a look at that. He, um, how the church became less strict with regard to remarriage. For example, some of their, these reasons included threat to the life of a spouse or a child and desertion when one of the spouses leaves. And usually... After a number of years, if the person hasn't come back, I think five years maybe, some of the person say, well, they're gone. Even when some people go to war and um, they're not actually uh, determined as killed in action, they just don't know where they are. And I think there's some rule of five years. If the person hasn't come back in five years, then the person can remarry. From an orthodox perspective, the man goes on, the priest, I think, from an orthodox perspective, divorce and remarriage belong to human weakness and failure. The Orthodox Church allows remarriage out of mercy and for the salvation of its faithful whose first marriage has died. Now remember, I'm not saying they necessarily agree, but I'm just reading you what they're saying. What, what, what he's saying might be correct. We'll, that's what we're going to learn more. Or because one priest says something, it doesn't mean it's correct. Or because I say something, it doesn't mean it's correct. We always check and especially with the elders who lived in our times, who were enlightened, and who can give us an interpretation of how do we understand. Like, for example, I'm going to read tonight a lot of things from, the, from Father John Kristiankin, which is a Russian elder. And he was there during communism and later on when people were unmarried and people were, it was a whole mess over there. And he had to deal with that. 
And he, and I'm going to read a lot of his letters to what he, what he wrote, and other people, like all the Paisus and other people, to see what do they say about this situation. So all because a priest says something, it doesn't mean it's correct. I'm just reading what, what is on their public, on their thing. It might be correct. We'll see. Also, from the same site, there was another thing saying the Orthodox Church understands that some marriages die. But they're using that quite a lot, that word die. And, the, and that these seriously conflicted marriages are destructive to the spiritual, physical, psychological and emotional well-being of those spouses as well as their children who are caught in an unhealthy, unholy, destructive relationship. Because the church desires that all its members come to the knowledge of Christ's truth, through economia, a type of pastoral flexibility is applied. Economia is, what it means is a pastoral flexibility, where these are the rules, but we're going to bend the rules for the sake of the salvation of people. If we make the rules too, depends on the times. Remember when I did talk 43? examining the Pharisee within us. I talked about the canons there, that some canons say that people shouldn't commune for certain sins for 15, 20 years. And I said that as time goes on, the canons are being lessened and lessened and lessened because the people have become, like, quite off. And if we were to apply the canons strictly, then it would cause people to lose their souls. So, that's what economia means. Now, whether this economia has been done in the proper way or not, we'll have a look. Actually, it's the, it's the responsibility of each bishop of how they want to do that, how they want to do strict or more flexible. So, out of economia, it has determined to permit its faithful to remarry. Another website called Ma- Marriage, Orthodox Christian Information Centre, it just, I found something there. Remarriage, it says there, after divorce is tolerated, look, note the word tolerated, on the basis of the possibility that the sacrament of marriage was not originally received with the consciousness and responsibility that would have made it fully effective according to this view remarriage can be a second chance. Now, what does that mean? Which is some truth there, because uh, today people are married, people are going to the sacrament of marriage not even knowing what, what it is. They go, man and wife go there, get married. Some of them had sexual relations even the night before, don't even care, don't know what it's about, who's God, what, what's the purpose, what's the priest doing, why is the priest putting crowns? They don't know, they don't care, so therefore they're not coming in the right spirit to the marriage. So he's saying, this particular website, saying, well, if the marriage wasn't, didn't have a, crop, a proper basis, then it can be destroyed. Now the question is, well, why are those people married in the first place? And we know what happens now. It's a mockery. The way that the bridesmaids are dressed and the whole thing and the makeup and the short dresses and, and um, breasts sticking out and cars that are motorbikes and all these stupidities and, and uh, it's a mockery. But I haven't got a parish, see, so I can speak. I, wouldn't, I can say to you here, oh, I would never do that. But I haven't got a parish. 
Now, does that mean the priests that do it are bad? That's up to their conscience. I'm a, I'm a priest monk. I don't have to do it. I don't, I don't want to do it. I think I prefer to die than, than to actually um, m- marry people in that type of mockery. I remember one person said to me, oh, when we went to the marriage, we were all stoned. We were, all, we were on drugs. And we went to the marriage. The whole bridal, cha- the whole bridal party was all, um, was all um, um, on drugs. And then the after parties. Heavy metal music, singing to the devil, all these type of songs. And then we say, we wonder why those marriages don't even last past six months, some of them. And the money that's wasted, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars on a on a on a pagan celebration at the Parthenon. Why? Saint Cosma says you shouldn't do those things. The marriage is not blessed. Orthodox Study Bible says, while recognising divorce as a serious sin, the Orthodox Church allows divorce and a second marriage as a concession to human weakness and as a corrective measure of compassion when a marriage has been broken. A third marriage is permitted only under specific, limited circumstances and a fourth marriage is never permitted. Now, I've got a note here that I found Somewhere it says, as, as the saying goes, the Orthodox Church blesses the first marriage, performs the second, tolerates the third, and forbids the fourth. That tolerate, we read, I read that word before, that the Orthodox Church tolerates, especially in, in regard to the third marriage. You know, when you say, that person's really obnoxious, but I tolerate him. So in other words, the Church does not like it, especially third marriages. Now some of you might say I find what you're saying is intolerable if you, get, if, if you get the pun. I find what you're saying is intolerable because what happens if it's not their fault and this and that. We can, uh, we can go on all night and give all these different things and saying the church is not fair. Why are the canons like that? Strictly speaking Second marriages, they shouldn't commune for a couple of years, and third marriages don't commune for five years, etc., etc. That's strictly speaking, that's what it should be. Whether they're applied or not, but it shows you the attitude of the church towards it. Now, some of you will say, as I used to say in the beginning, but that doesn't sound right. Why is that? Now, we, people that are into the feminism will say, oh, it's, all, it's like it's against women when it's not, it's both anyway. But let's just say, it's like it's against women. Don't question the church's canons because the canons were inspired by the Holy Spirit in the councils of the church. The authority of the Roman Catholic Church is the Pope. I said this in talk in the last talk on Saint Nectarius. The authority of the Roman Catholic Church is the Pope. The authority of the Orthodox Church is the Ecumenical Councils. That's why we can never join with them, because the basis of the two churches are completely opposite. We. Our, the basis of the, the authority of the Orthodox Church are the ecumenical councils 
the authority of the Roman Catholic Church is the Pope. Therefore, there will never be union, St. Nectarius says. So therefore, a lot of these things that we're reading come from ecumenical councils of councils that have been accepted by the whole church. We have no right to question them. I'll read you, I'll tell you some canons and you'll see that some of you go, oh, that's not fair, that's not fair. A woman who rolls over accidentally and smothers her child which, while she's pregnant, she's not allowed to commune for about a year because it says there in the canon, because of some, she must have lost some grace or something happened for her to have lost the child. A canon. A priest who accidentally kills someone. So I get into a car. I've got a licence. I won't drive. Um, I use it as ID. But if I did get into a car and, and drive and I hit someone and kill someone, I, I am not allowed to ever serve again as a priest. A young boy who was molested when he was young, no, no fault of his own. If the, if the molesting was of a serious nature, which I'm sure you understand what that means, then he's not allowed to become a priest. A priest, a person who's been married twice cannot become a priest. A priest whose wife dies and he wants to remarry has to give up his priesthood if he, if he continues. There are so many canons that to us with limited peanut brains we think and say, that's not fair. That's blasphemous to think like that. Let me read what St. Theophan the Recluse says about that. He says, but it's in the book that we produced, the Curse Grid Icon book, and in there I did a double spread on what is an anathema. On... Uh, Anyway, it's in there somewhere. 153-152-153. I read one part of it by St. Theophan the Recluse. By the very fact that you have conceived a different view of things than that which is maintained in the church, you have already separated yourself from the church. Having one's name written in the baptismal records does not make one a member of the Orthodox Church but the spirit and content of one's opinion. Whether your teaching and your name are pronounced as being under anathema, in other words, some, some people were publicly said anathema to them, you know, in certain heretics, while others didn't have their names formally and said that they are anathema, cut off from the church. But he's saying, it doesn't matter if you haven't been formally anathematized. He says, whether your teaching and your name are pronounced as being under anathema or not, you already fall under it when your opinions are opposed to those of the church and when you persist in them. Fearful is the anathema, leave off your evil opinions, amen. That was what St. Theophan the Cruz, which is explained to us that we have no right to have a different opinion to the church. Now, what I mean by the church, does that mean a bishop? 
No, because a bishop can make a mistake. Does it mean a priest? No, we don't mean that when we say the church. We mean the teachings of the church which have been accepted as truth. Absolute. We can't come and go, oh, but why is a woman and why is this and why is that? There's other rules. There's other rules. Oh, that's sexist or that's not fair. And even I said things about men as well. But people that are one way, it's sexist, sexist against women. But anyway, so we have all these different scenarios, and there's many more. Why did God inspire those holy fathers to give that to the church? And those teachings were accepted everywhere, by all, at all times, as we know as a being a condition for something to be orthodox. Now, I, I put that there because now I'm going to go on to something which could scandalise people. That's why I prepared that. Saint Nicodemus the Athenite, he wrote on second and third marriages. And let's see what he says. And remember, or, it, or because the church might not apply it to this extent, it's still good to know what the truth is. So even if the priest, say, doesn't give us an epithemia, meaning a, a penance, because I, I, I just um, spoke to someone last night in Greece because I wanted to get what's going on over there. I wanted to get different opinions. I spoke to two priests over there. And one priest spoke to a canon lawyer, meaning canon lawyer is a person whose expertise is in canon law. And he said, he rang me back up and he said, it's a mess. He says, in Greece, it's even got to the stage where the church will marry. So you've got a man and a woman. The man commits adultery with another woman and therefore that marriage is dissolved. They divorce and the church marries the man with the woman that he committed adultery with. But they probably thought, oh, economy, economy, let's do it. Like, let's, let's use economia, not to lose the people. And now it's become a mess. It's a mess everywhere. But let's see, let's have a look at some refreshing truth. And as I said, even if even though it's not applied to the letter, at least we can say, Oh, look, look, at, look at the way the church teaches in reality, not what people are saying today. Someone, St Nicodemus says, who enters into a second marriage, according to Canon 4 of St Basil the Great, is prevented from partaking of the divine mysteries for one or two years. According to Canon 2 of St Nikiforus and the first response of Nikitas Heraclius, they are neither to be crowned during their second ceremony, and according to Canon 5 of Neo Caesarea and the aforementioned Nikitas, neither is the priest who blessed them to eat at their table. So, the Saint Nicodemus says that they shouldn't be crowned. You know how we, the, the, the couple wear a crown? Stephana in Greek, the crowns. He's saying in a second marriage it shouldn't be done. I said, well, I understand that because the crown is meant to be something of special thing. Like, you know, you're, the church is crowning you and saying uh, congratulations for um, holding yourselves what it should be. But anyway, that's done in the first marriage. But then I find out that, that the church, a lot of the churches actually still crown people in second marriages, which I was surprised with considering that, that maybe it's out of economy. 
so they can make the people come back to church. But meanwhile, the churches are empty. So, one, they're not supposed to be crowned, strictly speaking, and the priest is not allowed to go and bless the table at the after, the after, the after dinner of the marriage because the second marriage, obviously, is looked at as not being something which is favourable. A third marriage is called a transgression by Gregory the Theologian. Canon 4 of St. Basil calls it polygamy. His 80th canon calls it worse than fornication. And his 50th canon calls it the shame and defilement of the church. Canon 4 of St. Basil excommunicates those who are married for a third time for five years from Holy Communion. Joseph Beery now says that those who have been married for the first time are engaged, blessed and crowned. Those married for a second time are only engaged and blessed but not crowned. Those getting married a third time are only engaged and this by allowance but they are neither blessed nor crowned. That's why I read about what St Theophan said before because some of you can react and say that's not fair, that's not this, that's not that. That is the pure teaching of the church. And I personally, I don't think that that hiding it from people is actually doing good. I think people should know, and I said they might not apply it to that extent, but at least people should know and not just hop, hop, hop into church and thinking that it's okay and that people say, oh yeah, in the Orthodox Church you can have second, third marriages, no problems. We know from Scripture that the marital bond is unbreakable. Women and men are bound as long as their spouses are living. That's, we've already established that. But the church permits divorce in case of adultery. By permitting divorce in this situation, the church emphasises how dreadful, in other words, how repulsive adultery is, why Christ chose that particular sin. To be more specific, the church permits divorce. It does not impose or force it. You are permitted to have a second marriage under the right circumstances, but it doesn't force it. It prefers that you don't. Second marriage. According to the teachings of our church, and only because of church economy, says Archimandrite Vasilios Bakuyanis here, which is this book, nice little book that he put together, a very good writer, Greek, it's been translated into English, um, some, this, this, is a, a, this is a lot of his material. It's called um, Marriage, a Spiritual Arena. So, second marriage, he says, according to the church, sorry, according to the teachings of our church, and only because of church economy, that means pastoral concession due to human weakness, because of human weakness, like Christ said, out of human weakness, Moses allowed divorce so as to prevent something greater, then the church is applying the same type of principle and saying, out of human weakness, we will make a concession. We will allow a second marriage so as to avoid greater catastrophes. And the, the Archimandrite says here, a second marriage is permitted in two cases. One, when one of the spouses passes away. In other words, when someone becomes a widow or a widower 
as Romans 7, 3, where St. Paul says, in this case they are free to marry whomsoever they please. That is a canon, and that's what St. Paul teaches as well. However, St. Paul states that a woman will be happier if she remains a widow, and a man, obviously, the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, line 40. So St. Paul says, you can have a second marriage if your spouse dies, but you'd be happier not to. It'd be better not to. Number two, when a divorce results from adultery, then the innocent party may remarry. Canon 87 of the Sixth Ecumenical Council. Not just a personal bishop's opinion. This is the ecumenical council that was accepted by the whole church. The innocent party may remarry. But Christ said even the innocent one commits adultery. Didn't he say that? In the beginning when we read it, he said if someone, if someone shoes away his wife and then doesn't accept the back but she remarries, then she's committed adultery. But the council, he says, that, she can get, that the person can get married even if it's not their fault. There seems to be a contradiction. Would you so not say that? So let's see. Let's have a look. We have to answer that. Christ says, no, the sixth ecumenical council, which is inspired by God. So Christ, as God teaches, no, but then the ecumenical council inspired, therefore from God, says yes. In the sixth ecumenical council, which is five centuries or more later. St. John Chrysostom states, we do not reject marriage, second marriages. We are simply advising people who have self-control to remain loyal to their first marriage. If a person loses their spouse and they can remain, uh, if they've got self-restraint, meaning sexually, then better for them not to get married. The church recognises that, that there are cases in which a marriage may lead to the loss of the soul, which we read in the, from those websites. St. John Chrysostom says in this regard, better to break the promise than to lose one's soul. So we've seen here that Christ's teachings are that, but as time goes on, the, t the, the, the church is becoming a bit more elastic and saying that, well, yes, adultery is a reason, but there's also other reasons too. And out of economy, not meaning to go against Christ's commandments, but due to the circumstances, the people, the way they've become, they introduced some softer laws. A second marriage, Father Bakoyanis there says, a second marriage is inferior simply because it is not completely pure. There is a certain degree of adultery involved. Now, see what he's saying here? There is a certain... Because that's what Christ said. Christ said, if a man or woman divorces, but not being their fault, and they marry someone else, they are considered to be an adulterer. So this is in accordance to what Christ is saying. There's a degree of adultery. As a result, this marriage is not praised. This is why the church applies penances, penance for second marriage, Canon 7 of Neocasaria, and, and does not ordain as priests 
people who have been married for a second time because the priest should be an example of the perfect example of what the church teaches. If the church is against second marriages, then a person who's been married twice cannot become a priest because we, the, the church says, for the priest, we expect it to be the proper rules. As for the people, well, out of concession, we'll allow second marriages out of economy, but not for the priests because they're meant to be um, have the, the proper example. So it says, men who have been married, in other, in other words, more than once, are not admitted to the priesthood. Now, go, it goes on. Neither does the church allow priests to marry twice. That is, if their wife dies, they cannot remarry. And if they do, they have to give up their priesthood. Again, showing that there's some, there is truth there that a second marriage is not um, the ideal. Both situations are considered a fall. A priest must always stand up for the truth of this. In the Orthodox Church, there is really one and only one marriage that is honourable, pure and holy, the first one. Note, in the life of St Basil the Great, there is an example concerning a man who was cheated on by his wife. The saint declares that the man can be excused should he marry, remarry. What does he mean by excused? Does anyone know? Can anyone really look and can understand what, what St Basil's saying there? So, a man in, is innocent, his wife committed adultery, there was a divorce. St Basil's saying if he remarries, he will be excused. What does that mean, excused? Why should he be excused if it's not his fault? Because it goes back to what Christ said. So therefore, St Basil is saying what we're saying before, there is a little degree of adultery there. Not to the same extent as the person who caused it, but still something. So what St Basil was saying, he will be forgiven. You don't forgive someone who's done nothing. So obviously for him to say he'll be forgiven means that there is some little sin there, that he, not little, but there is something there that he married the second time, he should have stayed single. Is what, that's, that's the ideal. But what happens if the man's young? What happens if he never had any children with the first wife? The church understands that. The young, no children, etc. So they, but what happens when someone's got five children, they go and marry another one? The Orthodox Church has, in general, always had a sense of reluctance regarding second marriages. Reluctance. It is completely wrong to state that Orthodox Christians may marry two or three times if it's, if it's nothing. Oh, you can marry two to three times. You can marry up to three times in the Orthodox Church. No, one marriage, the other two are not. The second one, a little bit, it's, it's forgivable. The third one, as we saw what St. Nicodemus called it, he called it a number of not very nice names. Does anyone remember one, one, one of the names? Worse than? fornication, polygamy, etc. On the website of the, of the uh, Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, I found there this document, which I was very surprised, where they talk about second and third marriages. And it says, for second marriage, a second marriage is an extension of the church's mercy due to human failings 
and weakness and is permitted only in certain circumstances. We've already established that. If one or both of the parties has been once married and then divorced rather than widowed, permission from the Metropolitan or Archbishop must be petitioned and received in order for the marriage to take place. The petition will be filed by the priest in accordance with the policies, etc., of the diocese. So there it's saying that when, we, when two people go and get married, if it's got first marriages, the priest doesn't need the permission of the bishop. When the second or third marriages are involved, it has to get the permission from the bishop because it's something which is above, it's extraordinary, it's not something which is uh, practice. It needs the, the permission of the bishop. He has to sign off. The bishop does not serve at the service of second marriage. Traditionally, the clergy do not attend the wedding dinner or reception. I'm surprised that they actually said that in these modern times. I thought they would have said um, that they, you know, of course they'll come and that because um, we don't want to upset people. I'm surprised that they did that. So I think what's happening now is the churches are starting to wise up and say, I think we've blundered it. We did it out of economy and things aren't getting better. It's getting worse. So I think what they're saying is, look, this is what second marriage is about. It's not something which is willy-nilly. I'm going to get second marriage and skip to the church. And then oh, if I don't like that, I'll go for the third one. One, only one priest serves at the service of the second marriage and, not, and that without a deacon because the deacon makes it nicer, etc. One priest at the service of second marriage. If it is the second marriage of the bride, her gown may not be white or elaborate, nor does her father give her away. If it is the second marriage of the bride, there is no bridal procession. You know, when the, um, when the, yeah, the priest meets the bride at the door, like when, when, we, when, when the bishop comes to the church. In the Russian church, very spectacular, the bishop comes to the door and then he wears the, the mandiyam and then he, as he walks into the church, they sing the Axionistin, it is truly me. In, in Slavonic, was it? Oh, yes. To the mother of God. Slowly, beautiful, they're singing that there and the, and the bishop comes in. The same procedures taken for the is, it takes place for the woman as a bride. She has the long trail there. She comes, and as she's coming down the aisle to go to the front of the church to meet the um, the spouse there, they sing the "It is truly meet" the same way as the bishop. So that's spectacular, something beautiful. That's not done in a second marriage. Um, it, she's simply led by the priest from the door to the front of the altar there to get married. In the third marriage, the same website says, a third marriage is the final extension of the church's mercy due to human failings and weakness. It is permitted only in very exceptional circumstances. If one or both of the parties have been twice married and then widowed or divorced or a combination thereof, they've got to get permission from the bishop, obviously. In all instances, the right of second marriage will be used even if one of the parties have never been married. So they use the same, they don't use the first marriage service, they use the second marriage, which, as I said, is less, is less beautiful and more of repentance, etc. Repentance, why? Because they dissolve the first marriage. The bishop does not serve at the third marriage, like we said before. Um, the clergy do not attend the, wed the wedding dinner or reception, like before. Only one priest serves, like before. No bridal gown may be worn, but rather a dignified dress. If it is not the bride's first marriage, the dress may not be white. 
So she might be marrying a man that's been married three times. This is the third time, sorry. And then, she, then they say, okay, you can wear a white dress if it's your first marriage. But then one would have to think, why would you marry someone who's already been, that's going for number three? But anyway, the number of guests at a third marriage is to be kept to a minimum. The wedding party at the third marriage is limited to four people. There is no formal procession or um, for the third marriage, like the second. The four persons of the wedding party simply assemble at the table on the solaire, which is the front there of the church there, before the start of the service and then depart afterwards without fanfare and without any joys and things like that. Who are the four people? The, 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 husband, the, the, the bride, the groom and two witnesses. That's how a third marriage should be performed. Now, that's pretty good. I actually um, thought that was, that was um, well said, except for one thing, the crowning. St Nicodemus says there is no crowning. They shouldn't be crowned. But today, when I spoke to the priest in Greece, he said that they do crown them even for second marriages. According to St John Chrysostom, widowhood can be a jewel. He wants to show um, the better alternative to second marriages. So say someone, say your spouse dies. St John Chrysostom says, some are magnified through marriage. In other words, some can become holy through marriage, while others are jeweled through widowhood. In other words, some become more spiritual after the death of their spouse. Like my mother, for example, well, when my father died, she was around 60. Obviously, um, there's no consideration of remarriage. But, but what happened was that uh, as soon as he passed away, she became more dedicated to the church. Started reading more, started praying more. So she became more progressed spiritually as a widow as what she did when she was married. So that's what St. Paul and that are saying, better to stay single. Obviously she was old, but when one of or both spouses desire to enter monasticism, they may be granted a divorce with the full support and blessing of the church, but both spouses must agree. So for example, one... Or two spouses might say, I want to become a monk, nun, etc., which happened here in Australia. There was um, a, a woman, uh, which I knew when, 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 from younger, went to Greece, and um, on a church group, and she was a doctor. She left her practice and she went to Greece and became a nun. Her parents were very pious, and they agreed, both agreed, to go to monasteries. So the mother went to the daughter's monastery and the father went to Mount Athos, or Simono Petra, if I remember correctly. I remember because I saw him there when I went as a pilgrim. And, uh, and they had to, of course, they both agreed. But sometimes it happens that only one wants to become a monastic. Both must agree. If one of the spouses, the one that's going to stay behind and not become a monastic, doesn't agree, then the church will not bless that particular person to leave the marriage, only if both agree. Excuse me, Father, is there a... Um, you talk about divorce in the Orthodox Church. Is there a... Uh, not, not a service, but do they have to go and physically get a divorce 
from the church? How does it work? A couple usually go and get a civil divorce first. They don't, they don't care what the church says. Then later on, if they want to remarry in the church, then they've got to approach the church to get an ecclesiastical divorce of the first or second marriage. The bishop has to okay that, etc. Now I'm going to say something which sounds really off, but this is what the priest told me from overseas. He said, because second and third marriages need the permission of the bishop, and because there are so many second and third marriages now in Greece, he goes, the, uh, and it says here, if you remember, that second and third marriages, are, they have to be under circumstances, especially third, exceptional circumstances, but in each case, second and third needs to be examined by the bishop to see whether he will permit that marriage to occur. He said there's so many of them in Greece that what's happening now is the bishop sits and just signs. Next, signs. Next, that's so many. No examination. No, that's to me, that's, that's mockery. But that's the way it's become. Are there any questions before we go on? Remember, calm, nice and calm. Don't get too feisty, yes? They have to get an ecclesiastical divorce first and then they can go. Yeah. Well, they allow it. it. might be second marriage. I mean, they allow it, but as we said before, at least we've got to the point now that we understand that second marriages are, are permitted out of economy and, and um, if it's looked at as being beneficial for the persons involved. And the third is tolerated, but it's not looked at as being good. Today, um, people don't know this teaching of God's law towards marriage. They don't know it. If they knew it, I think there'd be less of these problems occurring. People would stay and tolerate instead of saying, like one person told me the other day that uh, her sister said to her, um, um, I deserve better. I deserve better. I want to find a man that's going to love me. Good luck. Yep. <laughs> Sorry? What I'm trying to do tonight is that we have two groups of people, unfortunately, in the church. We have those who are not church-minded in any way, worldly. They only come for cultural reasons or whatever reasons to the church, or maybe their parents made them come. And with them, it's a mess. Maybe some of them might even hear this talk and might be enlightened. That's good. My purpose today is to help people to stay in the marriages, not to get to that stage. We already saw that it's easy to get a second marriage, even a third marriage. It's, from what I just told you, I'm not saying that all the bishops do that, but that's what they said in Greece that some bishops just sit there all day and just sign these papers. No examination at all. So, for example, isn't it abominable that a man who was, ha who was, who was married with his wife or because he fell in love with someone else, supposedly, that he leaves his wife, who didn't commit adultery, 
he committed adultery with someone else, and the church grants them divorce and then blesses a marriage with the person he committed adultery with. You see what I mean? So this is all blasphemy, if I may say so. Any other questions? If you don't get an ecclesiastical divorce, but you divorce civilly, does that mean you're still married? In the, ch in the church's eyes, until they are granted... Look, obviously... Spiritually speaking, they're torn apart, but they still need to get the ecclesiastical divorce if they're going to go to a second marriage in the church. Some of them don't even do that. They just live with someone else. They don't care. And they could be still have not even have an ecclesiastical divorce from the first one. They've got to get, they've got to get that. They've got to get that. People don't care much anymore of what the church says. There was an example of economy in the New Testament, which I thought was very interesting to help us, because some people might say, okay, if the church changed Christ's rules, does that mean that they're going against things like that? But of course that can't be right, because these, are, these, these canons were given to us by the Holy Fathers. But in the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 5, it was said there that certain men came and said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, because Jews were circumcised, circumcised men. So they said that to be saved, you must be circumcised. However, when the pagans came into the, the Gentiles came into the church, they weren't circumcised. So there was this kind of uh, uh, controversy going on where the, where the Jewish uh, Christians were saying, they need to be circumcised to be saved. And the apostles were saying, no, they need to be baptised to be saved, not, not circumcision. So it says here, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise, and others now, it is necessary to circumcise them, meaning the pagans, the, the, um, the Gentiles that became Christians, they have to be circumcised and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So there was all this confusion. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and this particular meeting was like the first synod where, the, where they all got together, the apostles, to discuss the matter. And it says here, then James said, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them, like, don't trouble them, they don't need to be circumcised. This is what we say to, the, to them. He says, abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. In other words, sexual practices and pagan things that they used to do as, as, not, as our pagans. That's what's important, not to be circumcised. So, and in that, in that meeting that the apostles had, it said it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. That's the basis of the ecumenical councils and the councils. That's what the, that's what the Holy Father said. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit, meaning that it was inspired by God. Then it says, further on, in the next chapter, 16, then it says, Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Now, Timothy, 
His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek, meaning that he, the father was a Gentile. And it turns out that he was not circumcised. They took the religion of his father. He, well, he was well spoken of by the brethren that, who were at Lystra and Economia. Economia, I can't say that word. Paul wanted to have, uh, Paul wanted to have him to go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, the study Bible makes a little interpretation and says, since Timothy is partly of Jewish heritage, Paul had him circumcised to accommodate Jewish sensibilities. In other words, the Jews couldn't cope with the fact that Timothy was part Jew but was not circumcised. They couldn't, they couldn't fathom that. It was too hard for them to work it out. And they were being scandalised. So Paul circumcised Timothy so as to shut them up, to calm them down, one can say. In the case of Titus, who's someone else, a Gentile, complete Gentile, like non-Jew, Paul refuses to circumcise him on dogmatic principles, meaning that believers do not receive salvation through the law. Believers do not receive salvation through circumcision. Why then did St. Paul circumcise Timothy? Out of economy, not because he said, I'm circumcising you because you're going to be saved, but to calm the Jews down who at that time had not spiritually progressed to understand. And therefore, the work that St. Paul was doing with Timothy, the Jews couldn't listen. They weren't listening, they were scandalised, they were getting all upset because how can a Jew not be circumcised? So St. Paul, out of economy, circumcised him even though at the synod beforehand, which seemed good to the apostles and the Holy Spirit, that said you don't need to be circumcised, he still did it. So why, I'm, why I chose that is to show you that sometimes the church does exercise economy even if it seems to contradict. So second, marriage is contradictory to Christ's teaching, but out of economy it's done for the better just in case people just completely lose themselves. So the last part here, in conclusion, the Orthodox Church, with understanding and compassion, and out of personal concern, can apply economia by accepting the divorce and not rejecting the sinful, humanly weak believers or depriving them from God's mercy and further grace. It is the precise goal of economia that the weak person not be permanently cut off from communion with the church in a similar way to Christ who came to save the lost. So Christ was compassionate so the church is being compassionate and says, if we don't allow these people second marriages, what's going to happen is they're going to lose themselves. They might fall away from the church, which is the, which is the principle of econ economia. But today it's gone, not economia, but it's gone to the point of madness. It's just too much. Like a person leaving his wife or leaving the husband, whatever, and marrying the person they'll commit adultery for a number of years and then blessing that. Things like that. That's gone way too much. But the principle of economia is used, and we saw St. Paul used it on the um, Apostle Timothy, circumcised him because he was part Jew and the Jews couldn't cope with it. So that's it. So the next part of the talk, after the um, sandwiches, 
we're going to go on and see what do the saints and elders teach about divorce, how they apply the canons. Because remember what I've read to you years ago, I said to you a while ago, I said to you that we've we got to be careful of what was said years ago, how do we apply it now? Because some people might listen to this talk and say, oh, he's quoting canons and you know, we can't apply canons now and this and that. I'm not saying to apply it to the strict rule. I'm saying at least people know what's the church's attitude. At least if someone's going to go to a second marriage, they can go with a bit of a bowed head in repentance and say, I failed my first. And actually can help them maybe not to fail the second one as well. Instead of going there with their heads up high and go, well, church allows second and third. If I don't like this one, I'll go to the third. Okay, short break. Some people are, are a bit confused um, with if what happens if they had families but they weren't married in the church. They were married civilly and, and I'm, I'm not going there. Um, maybe later on, maybe in the next talk. This talk is talk about church marriages. Later on, we have to look at what happens if someone was not married in the church, whether in a heterodox church or just civilly, but was had a family and children and things like that. How do we classify that? I'm not dealing with that today. That's not... Um, I, it's too, become too complicated. I'm dealing with church marriages today, uh, number one. And, uh, okay, let's continue on. Uh... In the last talk, and I read this in the last talk and the talk before, Elder Macarius of Optina, where he said, no connection on earth is greater than that between a man and a wife. And I said at the last talk and the talk before, if someone knows that, has that in their mind when they're going towards the um, marriage, then it would help them a lot. No connection on earth is greater than that between man and wife. Number two, Saint Tikhon of Zadonsk, a Russian saint who the Russians call the Russian Chrysostom, the husband must not abandon his wife nor the wife her husband until death, but according to their vow, the promise that they made, and consent, they must remain inseparable to the end. And if you remember in the last talk also, I read um, from the ex-abbot of Simonopetra Monastery, Archimandrite Emilianos, who's, who wrote that the most fundamental thing in marriage is love, and love is about uniting two into one. And he goes on and says, God abhors separation and divorce. He wants unbroken unity. That was a, a contemporary person. God abhors separation and divorce. God hates separation and divorce not hate like we hate, but it's something that he does not want. And number four, St John Christum says, no, one ha no, you have no right to get rid of your wife. Your wife is your body. Since you can't cut off your body and throw it away, neither can you throw your wife away. You must love her like your own body. We read that, and that's from Ephesians chapter 5, where so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and, and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. So 
That's also the advice of St John Chrysostom, according to St Paul and Christ, of course, that the two become one. And St John Chrysostom says, if you kick out your, if you kick her out, you will be judged in the same manner as an adulterer. Now, why is it again this emphasis on men divorcing? Because in those days, that was I don't think women did that. It was the men that had that uh, availability to be able to. Uh, get rid of their wives but of course now it's both um so how to how to avoid divorce so that's just some little bit of teachings from the last talk i'm going to speak about i've got a, a number of uh, groups of things i'm going to talk about a2 i don't know where it's gone to pq but we're not going to get through all of it now and i'm going to go through uh things that can help people in a marriage I'm going to read from various saints and elders to help us. The first one is very, very important. It's very, it's, uh, it, it, uh, people don't even look at it like this. I, al I always teach this, I try to teach this to married couples, but unfortunately not many listen. Whoever listens, of course, we benefited. Now, Father John Christiankin, the Russian elder there, he said the following in a letter. Listen to the voice of your spouse. The Lord is sending help to you through her. Your wife is a living person and she lives in the stream of God's providence. The Lord can inform you of the truth more speedily through her than through anyone else. That's to me, it's very powerful. What does that mean for some of you that couldn't follow very well? It means that God enlightens the spouse to show his will. So in this case, the, the elder is writing to a man and he's saying to this man, listen to your wife because God can speak through her to, uh, to show you the truth. And the same with the, with the wife. The wife should listen because a lot of times this has happened. I'm going to give you some examples. Um... There was a, a man who was married to a heterodox. In other words, he was married to, a, I think, a Protestant woman, but in the Orthodox Church. So he was, he was Orthodox, she wasn't. And there was some type of uh, business with some relative of his. His wife said, you must get it done legally. And the husband said, no, he's, he's my brother or cousin or whatever, sister. Oh, why should I do that? The wife is saying, no, you should do that. He didn't listen. He lost a million dollars because it was a very big business. And the same person, which was very interesting, and I said to him, I said, see, your wife was correct. I think you should go up to her and say, you know what, whatever her name was, what, you, know, I, you know, I was wrong. You were correct. I think you should say to her, forgive me, for I should have listened. Because now I can't do that. This same person went somewhere to a monastery in Greece and he was speaking to a person there that he wanted to confess to. And the person there... The, the, the spiritual father was telling him 
he said, he, sorry, the, the man said to the spiritual father, I've got a question to ask you. And the spiritual father goes, he goes, I know the question. I know the question. He goes, how do you know the question? He goes, don't ask, I know. Mystical, you know, it sounds like really um, something, something from the, the life of Saint Seraphim of Sarov, like the Starets. So this person was saying, I know. He goes, but how do you know? He goes, I know. The answer's no. He goes, but how do you know what the question is? He goes, I know. Anyway, so he tells me about this, and, I, and, I, and, I, and he said to me that he also told his wife, who's not even orthodox. The, without knowing what the wife said, I said to him, um, I'm sorry to say, you know, whatever his name is, John, um, but, you know, you yap a lot. So you, what probably happened, I think, is that you went and spoke to some of the monks that were in the monastery. Yap, 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 he just goes on and on, and they must have went and told him. And um, he says, uh, oh, I don't remember if I spoke. I go, but, but you always speak. <laughs> you don't stop. Right? Anyway, so, and I said, what does your wife think? She goes, oh, she said exactly what you said. She said that he already knew what you were saying and things like that. I go, you should listen to her more often, even if she is um, Protestant. Because still, God enlightens the spouse for one. There was another example. Um, there was a man who decided with his wife to make an extension of the house. Make an, like an extension. So he um, rings up and says to me, um, oh, we're going you know, to go ahead. And I said to him, how are you going to go ahead? Uh, where are the plans? He goes, no, no, we're going to go ahead. Where the, you know, the builder's available. We're going to come in. He's going to knock down things and things like that. I go, but where are the plans? He goes, no, my wife said that you know, it's a good opportunity. We've got to go forward and do it now. I said, but the plans, you can't do. How's he going to know what to do? And this person kept on going and going and going and going. I was half an hour, lost my voice. Actually, four hours today I'm going to be speaking my voice would be much better condition than what I did with him. Not that I was shouting at him, but I got tired because it was, when you're speaking to a donkey, it's a bit, you know, a bit hard, <laughs> stubborn. So I said to the, to, to the poor man as he was um, uh, there, and I said to him, um, but what does your wife say? He goes, she said we should go forward. I said, I find that very hard to believe. He goes, no, she, I said, as, anyway, so I spoke to the wife, and the wife said, I told him not to do it. I said, what, what did you tell him? Because I said to him, this, 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 and this. I go, that's exactly what I said to him. Was the man enlightened? No. He, would, he didn't even say, oh, that's a coincidence. So the priest said it. My wife said exactly the same. Could that be God speaking? Maybe, you know, God's showing me something. No. No, and, he lost, and he lost himself. He couldn't admit. And then I, I said to him, um, how about the architect? He goes, oh, the architect said to go forward. I said to the wife, why don't you ring up the architect, even though it's not your business, ring up the architect and ask. The architect says, I didn't tell him to go forward. So the architect said not to go forward. His wife said not to go forward. I told him not to go forward, but he wanted to go forward. Anyway, so what happened was that from his ego, and he wouldn't listen, he lost grace. He lost grace and he couldn't come home. He just, he just started roaming the streets like a, like, 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 like a silly person. I said, what happens if you got killed? He goes, oh, I don't care. I didn't care. See, that's what's called loss of grace. Because he didn't listen. Not that he listen to me, listen to his wife. Or the husband or the wife to listen to the husband. A lot of times that's what God shows, but we don't understand that. And that's what Father John's saying here. 
people who are told by their by their friends, for example, or relatives, you know, your child is doing this, this, and this. No, he's not. No, she's not. They don't listen. How did that person know that, that God is not speaking through those people to tell you about a fault of your children? And the ones that don't listen, their children become abominable. I know many examples of that. They don't listen. They fight everyone. They fight every single person that speaks against their children. And at the end, what was said, their children become. Another woman who was, who was um, in the church, etc., some of her friends were saying to her, you know, we've noticed that you're going a bit off, you're becoming a bit worldly. No, I'm not. No, this, no, that. Don't tell me this, don't tell me that. Just going on and on and on. Wouldn't listen to anyone. I spoke to her as well. Didn't listen to anyone. This is years ago. And at the end, she lost grace. I said to her, how do you know that God's not speaking to you through your friends to tell you, don't you, you know, what you're doing is wrong? She didn't listen. She lost grace. And she didn't, and she didn't um, not that she did it on purpose, but she, she didn't died from some accident that occurred where she did something which, was, which, which she didn't even know that she was doing, and she didn't killed herself because she lost grace. So there's a lot of examples. The other guy lost a million, the other one roamed in the streets, the other one nearly died from some type of um, poisoning. Didn't listen. And, what, and that's what God does. He takes away his grace from the egotist. So, Elder Paisius in this book, I like the part, he goes, at one stage he was living in, there and there was an orphan that he took in because the orphan in those days there was no, like, it was a bit, that no one was taking care of him. And he said that Saint Elder Paisius wanted so much to be obedient to someone, and because there was no elder there, he would be obedient to the young child. So he would say to the child in the morning, so what should we do today? Should we cut wood or should we do this? He goes, I don't want to cut wood. He goes, okay, we'll do it that. And he would listen to the child because he wanted to cut his will. And when someone cuts their will, then... Um, God gives them grace. So, for example, we have a husband and wife. They have an they, One says that, one says that. The first one to give in is the one that gets the crown. The first one to give in, as long as it's not a matter of, say, dog, you know, like a dogmatic issue or something that's a moral issue, what is it? I want to buy that lounge. No, I want to buy that lounge. Then they have a fight. The first one to give in is the one that wins the crown. From Christ. So, a lot of times, cutting our will, but in this case, what I'm saying is that God can enlighten the spouse. But now we run, we've got to run to the elders, to the one that that other guy went to. I know. <laughs> Instead of listening to his wife, I know. Expensive mistake. The next one, sorry, any questions on that one? Did you understand that one? That one is very, very important. And, I've, and my experience is the ones who don't listen, it doesn't mean that everything your spouse says is correct. And what I say to people is, i got no problem in the person not accepting everything. My problem is when the person rejects everything. 
That's my problem. That's what I find with people. Reject everything. It's like the other person doesn't exist. It's just their will. Like a three-year-old. When a three-year-old's playing, they don't know how to socialise. It's their blocks and that's it. If you go near them, you've got a block in the head. So that's, the, that's, that's their behaviour. That's the same as a lot of couples today. It's my way or no way. My way or the highway. What's the highway? Divorce. Anxiety and married couples, Elder Paisios teaches something. This is now part B. Elder Paisios said one should be content with bare necessities and not make plans for great things like complex, extravagant, expensive things because then one will have more time to simply stay at home with one's wife and children to engage in charitable activities, to pray and enjoy a warm family atmosphere and not be under constant pressure to earn more and more money. So people go for big things. People go, start from the, that starts from the beginning. The big $30,000 marriages, uh, celebrations, which could go on the loan. So we have it there, uh, for, and, which, is, which is silly. Then people, like our parents, moved into a little two-bedroom place or something small, but now today they've got to move into mansions. Mansions, pools, two cars. Just the credit card. You just use the credit card or borrow on the loan. Money, and then obviously, you know, those credit cards, they're very wicked because you don't notice it. So you're spending, spending. It's only when you get your statement and you're going up to 30000 as some people are, but I'm dealing with now, their credit cards are 30000 and they might lose the house because you don't notice it. Just spend, 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 spend money all the time to make sure that, that everyone, the children have everything and that everything's the best. And at the end, they have to work. So the women has to work. Some women say, I don't want to work. I'd rather stay home and take care of my children. But they're forced to work because if they don't, they'll lose everything. Well, what Elder Paisus is saying is just don't, don't go for big things. Go for small things. I always advise people to get something small and be blessed. And that way you don't have to do two jobs and then the woman doesn't have to work continually, full-time or whatever, more time for the children. And it's been those other marriages where everyone's working and they try and say to us on the television, oh, you know, if the woman works, it doesn't matter, the children don't get affected at all. And there's studies to prove it. Some of their studies you can throw in the garbage bin, actually, because a lot of them are lies. Studies prove that children brought up with same-sex um, couples have just as they're just as healthy and normal as they are in a heterosexual relationship. Studies prove it. I'll leave that. Um, I believe, says Elder Paisus, the most reasonable decision lies not in the earning of huge sums of money, but in setting up our lives in a Christian manner, for it was said to man that he should not concern himself about many things, but one thing is needful. What's the main thing that we should be concerned with? The salvation of our souls. A husband should be concerned about the salvation of his wife's soul. The wife should be concerned about the salvation of her husband's soul, and both of them to be concerned for the salvation of their children, not to have big things. My father would always <clears throat> say, don't live beyond your means. 
that was his um, uh, teaching. Didn't teach much, but that's one thing that he did say. Don't live beyond your means. I mean, I never saw air conditioners when I was young and things like that. I just never saw them. They, they wouldn't buy it. I mean, even the flies used to get in because they wouldn't buy any screens. Don't live beyond your means. So that's what his thing. They didn't spend money. They said it's dead money. They don't like that. But I never grew up with this pressure of being scared that the house that I live in is going to be taken away. And we see the result of that today because we see that all over the world, the big crisis in America and all that, all those mansions have been sold because people forgot the true God and worshipped the money and luxuries and properties and investments and supers, superannuation and what's the other stuff that they do? Um, those superannuations, a lot of them were dwindled, hardly nothing left for people now. Uh, the investment properties were bro broke, they had to sell. A mess. God's mercy to say to people, that's not what's important. What's important is spiritual life and life with your family. Why do you think these adulteries occur? Because a lot of times the spouses are working, working, working continually. Well, the other spouse is left behind or is going to work and meets other people and because they're not seeing each other, they, they fall for other people. It's just silly things. Number two, Elder Paisio said the following. These days I stress simplicity to lay people because many of the things they do are not necessary and they end up being consumed by anxiety. I speak to them of austerity and asceticism. Austerity means when you're kind of living with the bare necessities. Don't live with too much things. I constantly scold them. If you want to get rid of anxiety, he said to them, simplify your lives, simple lives. Sometimes, you know, because we, we do the talks, we have to buy machinery, you know, these computers and all that. Oh. When I know I have to get something new, I, I go for anxiety. Firstly, because all the instruction manuals are as thick as telephone books. <laughs> and then you've got to read them and then this, and then you've got to bring up technicians. And I just say, I just, sometimes I just wish I can throw it all away. But there are people that have got iPods and tablets and these screens and computers and games and all these things. And... Um, their brains are so scrambled that they wonder why they don't go to church anymore. You see, years ago, about even 20 years ago, people used to go to church more. Now they can't because they can't, can't focus anymore. Distractions and too much stress. Some people get upset and have breakdowns because their plasma's got a burnt mark there, the Channel 7 from the television because it's, got, it's constantly down there. Is the plasma thing? So it says channel seven in the corner and then that all of a sudden when it's off, it's still there because it's kind of somehow burns on there and they get all these breakdowns. They go, oh, I paid 15,000 for this plasma and things like that. It's all stress. And that stress goes on to the family. Now he goes on, I, I constantly scold them. You simplify your lives. Then he goes to, and he says the magic words. That is how most divorces start. People have to do 
People have to do too many things, too many responsibilities, and they get dizzy. Both parents work and abandon their children. The result is fatigue, meaning tiredness, and nervousness, which causes small issues to turn into large quarrels and then to automatic divorces. Automatic divorces, he says. That's where they end up. But if they, are, if they simplified their lives, they would find rest and joy. Stress is catastrophic. That's what the elder says. Now, isn't that a great bit of advice? Some people say, I'm going to save up. Why? Some women say, oh, I'm not a very good parker in my car. And they've got new cars now. It parks by itself. 50,000. Just parks by itself. Just press the button and goes in like that. So they're going to save. They're going to work a couple of jobs so they can get that, so they can park, by, so they can park on their own by itself. Why shouldn't we have a pool? The next-door neighbour's got a pool. Why can't we have one so our children can drown as well? So, and that's no disrespect to the ones that have lost children in that way too, by the way. It's just why. You know, it's, it's, it's I mean, one or two die a day or a week or whatever it is in Australia. Why have it? Oh, we're going to have the fence. Well, they had fences too, but the child still got in and drowned. Once I was at a very rich house, said the elder, when they told me in conversation, Elder, we live in paradise, while other people are in, great, in such great need. That's what, that, that's what he said. He said, we said they, they said to him, Elder, we live in paradise, because they had a beautiful house, right? While other people are in such great need. And he, he replied, you live in hell. God said to the rich man, fool, this night your soul is required of you. He quoted from Luke chapter 12, 20, when the rich man filled up his barns, he goes, I am filled and I can sit now and enjoy myself and things. And then it says, but tonight your soul will be taken away. You're going to die tonight. What are you going to do with your full barns? It's finished. Number three, Elder Paisio said, and true, that is true. Actually, I'm not saying that I'm a very sensitive creature, but I, I really, when I go through um, areas that are very rich, like the Vaucluse and things like that, um, as we're driving sometimes there, um, the few times that I go anywhere, uh, I actually get a sadness and I get a bit sick. And I say, these people have got all these big, big houses and is there any room for God in those houses? Because when the more you've got, the less room there is for God in, in your life, you see? Now, people might say, does that mean we should be poor? There are rich people who were saved and we've done a talk, I, I did a talk on that, number 48, Blessed are the merciful. In there, listen to that, because I said, it's not a sin to be rich, but it's, it's when you put your heart onto those riches. And what are you doing? Because if God's given you money, he's given them to you for a reason. The reason is to help others. When we use the money for ourselves, then that's, you know, and things like that. So whoever's got ears to hear, let them hear. Elder Paisio said, when one returns from his work and is frustrated or anxious, it is good for him to go to a park for 20 minutes so as to return home calm and with a smile, even though this may make him late. 
Simple advice. Now, some might say, oh, how silly. It's a, what a silly advice, and how is that going to save a marriage? I speak to a lot of women, and um, it's a common thing. They really, they really, really loathe when, if they're, for example, if they're not working, they're home all day, looking forward to see their husband, the husband comes with the face hanging like a hound dog. <laughs> Seen those hound dogs with their cheeks hanging down? And they don't like that. Even if you have to act a bit, but you don't have to come with all your anxiety from work and sit there like a depressed person and spreading depression through the house. And he says that. And Elder Thaddeus, the Serbian elder, he said, you can see for yourself how one can create either harmony or disharmony within the family depending on the kind of thoughts and wishes one has. If the head of the family is weighed down or overloaded with worries and thoughts about some difficulty, then the peace in that family is disturbed. All the members of the family are depressed. They have no peace, no comfort. The head of a family must radiate goodness to all the members of his family. Now, some feminists might say, and who makes them the head of the family? The man. That's coming up. That talk's coming soon. I'm going to actually speak about that whole, that teaching of the church. The poor feminists, oh, sometimes you've got to feel sorry for them. They actually, um, they've done so much to make women independent and to hate men, and they've done so much to what, what they're doing, and then suddenly what's happening lately is it's backfiring on them. More and more women are saying no to abortion. More and more women are saying yes to marriage. More and more women are saying no to, I don't want to work, I want to stay home and take care of my children. More and more women are saying, I want the man to take care of me. I want the man to be the responsible person in the house. More and more women are saying, I want to the man to love and respect me and take care of me. And the feminists are pulling their hair, what little they've got, because most of them cut it, and they are very, very upset. Very, very upset with what's going on. It's all backfired after the, fifth, after the 40 years of feminism, whatever's going on there. They would think that, you know, we're going to finally break the, this, this bad evil that's going on in the world. And yet that's not what's happening. See, even in America, the um, modern-day Babylon there, they actually are more and more going pro-life, meaning they're, not, they're against abortions. More and more people are starting to say, I want to stay virgin uh, until, uh, for, to, to, to get married. More and more people are coming back to the Bible. Very, very upset, the poor, the, 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 those poor women. Now, some of you might say, I've got a feeling that you're against feminism. Well, isn't that obvious? <laughs> Marriage and abortion. Father John Christiankin wrote the following to someone. This is C now. Now I'm going to tell you my only argument against all of your arguments which are now pushing you into hell. Some, this woman wrote to him saying that she needs to do an abortion. She was given all these arguments. No, the older says, no, that for every child 
that is unborn due to his mother's will or her mother's will, each child to which she later gives birth for her own joy will take revenge upon her with sorrows, sicknesses and psychological oppression. Now, to tell you the truth, um, we know that sins cause problems in the family. But when I read this, I said, this is um, absolutely, that's so, I could so well put. Did you understand it? And he says, this is a law. You cannot expect happiness in earthly life after infant, inf infanticide. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't just call it abortion, he calls it infanticide, which is the killing of a child. Don't worry what all these people are saying, that it's not a child, it's not a child until it breathes. We're not interested in what they say. We're interested in what God says. And the church calls abortion infanticide. It's still, you are killing a child. No, no, it's an embryo. So he's saying to this woman, for every child that you murder, the other children that you have later on, that because you felt like having them, say, oh, now I'm ready to give you joy, he said that those children will later on will, will take revenge because, of the, because you murdered their brothers and sisters. And it says that the woman and the man who, who is involved, if he's involved, will suffer from sorrows, sicknesses and psychological op oppression. This is a law. You cannot expect happiness in earthly life after infanticide. And as for life in eternity, well, it's terrible even to think about it in a word, hell. He said if you do that, hell is where you'll end up. Hell on earth, hell after the grave. Hell on earth because the children will, will torment you, the ones that you have, and hell after the grave. Do you know why this is so and cannot be otherwise? Because by doing this terrible, evil deed, you would be consciously, knowingly killing an angelic infant soul. So think about it, repent that such a thought even came to your mind. Heavy words, would a priest speak like that today? Not much. But yet that's a very big sin. Now some might say, but why are you discussing that? We're Christians, Christians wouldn't do that. Well, unfortunately the canons were written for Christians who do sometimes do those type of things. Out of weakness, out of temptation, out of force. It could be even forced by their mother-in-law, by their mother, by their sister. Um, oh, how can you have another one? It's too much for you now. You're going to go and study. You're going to go and study now. So, you know, you go to the abattoir to get rid of it. And he says straight out, that's what, I, personally, I believe that's what should be said in the churches. That people can know. Of course, there's repentance. But not when this creature here is writing to him and saying, I'm, I'm going to do it. So he has to speak. Well, if you're doing that, you're doing it fully conscious. And I'm telling you, don't do it. Those who have fallen into that sin, 
they, they have God's um, mercy. They run to a spiritual father. They um, confess. And that's why a lot of times I've noticed when you read elders and things like that and the people come and say, I'm having trouble in my family, I'm having trouble with my children, whatever. The, some of the questions the elders ask, one of them is, have you had an abortion? If you have, fix it up. I do the same. Some, not that I confess anymore, but when people ask and ring, I say, look, I want to know. Um, if you don't want to answer, you don't have to answer. I'm not, I'm not interested in your private life. But I'm just going to tell you, if you've had an abortion, if you've committed adultery, if you do unnatural things, whatever, 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 fix them up. Because it doesn't matter, you can go to all the monasteries in the world, you can venerate all holy icons, you can go and find all the holy elders in the world, none of those will help you unless you fix up those particular serious sins. One of them is abortion. Number two, the Holy Fathers say that the living children of mothers who kill their own infants take revenge upon their mothers for their brothers and sisters who never saw God's light. Yes, and there are many other sins known and unknown. And sorrows are a penance from God. It's like God given an epidemic. It's like God is saying, you did wrong, now you have to suffer so that your punishment in the next life will be less. That's out of mercy. But you have to bear them without murmuring. So when someone has done something serious and we, be, and we suffer as a consequence of that, we say, I am suffering because of the sin that I've done. And we have to try and accept it without complaining and saying, I'm, I'm suffering because of my sin. That's why Elder Paisio said from his, from his own sins, whatever they were, he says that he accepted the suffering from that carpenter so as to wash away many of those sins. But people say, but isn't confession enough? No, confession's not enough. Confession is we go, we speak to the priest, but the priest should actually give an epithemia. Epithemia means the priest should give a penance. You marry in the second time, you should get so many years. It's not done now, fair enough. But what's done is that God says, well, okay, well, the priests aren't going to give the epithemia, they're not going to give the right penance to help the person to come to their senses. Because when someone gets told they're not going to commune for five years, they go, ooh, this is serious sin. But the priests don't do that much now. Some still do, but not that much. But nevertheless, God says, well, I will give an epidemio. I will give a penance. I will give a sickness, some sufferings to that person to help them make up for the sins that they did. And that's why we get sick and have all these problems as a way of uh, wiping away the many sins, known and unknown, willingly and unwillingly. Number three, same person, Father John. He says, infanticide is, is a mortal sin, the consequences of which will reflect themselves first of all upon your soul and then upon those children whom you have already born. I'm just reading different ways of saying it. They will suffer in life. Who will suffer? The children will suffer in life and take revenge upon you for their murdered little brother with such affliction, torments, etc., that you will not be able to bear it. That's reality. And we, we, we need to know that. If people know that, they'll think twice. When the priests don't speak up and say how serious it is, then people just say, well... I'll just go and confess or whatever. 
But if people know that, I wonder if they'll do it. D, part D, try to bear each other's burdens. Elder Ambrose of Optina wrote the following letter. If spouses always shared equally in a Christian manner the burden of their lives, then life would be good for people even on earth. But since spouses are often slack, one or both of them, our earthly happiness is not enduring. So what the elder is saying is that people are selfish. Today, more and more, because, because a lot of people are being brought up in a selfish way, big houses, don't even share bedrooms anymore, so each child's got their own bedroom, their own computer, their own television, their own games, whatever else they've got in there. And they live pretty much on their own, they, they, they lead their own life. A lot of times the father leads his own life, the mother leads her own life, they don't really mix. And therefore they're not used to interrelating, they're not used to helping each other. I call it doggy dog, you know, it's just like no one cares, they only care about themselves. Those children are now getting married. Selfish children are now getting married and their selfishness is pouring out in their marriage. Where they see their spouses, they don't care. So like a woman has birthed, has given birth, the husband's there, sees the woman up all night, this and that. Does he say, look, you know, um, just have a sleep in. Have a sleep in, I'll wash the dishes. No, she has to stay up all night and then go out and wash the dishes as well and then breastfeed. And while all that's going on, she has to go and pick up the children from school and then go shopping. So all that, and he just sits there and says, um, why didn't you wash the dishes and things like that? Selfishness. And, and vice versa, the, the same with the um, women. I've met some really selfish women too. Selfish men, selfish women. A cancer. I find that in dealing with married couples... Selfishness has been one of the hardest. It's to the point that some people are, are close to sociopaths. A sociopath has no conscience. Doesn't care. Very difficult to live with a, with a, um, a person who is selfish. So that's why I said in that talk, number 12, whom to marry, whom not to marry, one of the things I mentioned in there from the fathers and that is that, you know, examine who you're going to marry. Do they lead a life which is selfish? But while they're being selfish with their family, with their friends, but to you, I love you, and they're nice to you, but, there's, but they're selfish. So the person thinks... Okay, well, yeah, he's selfish, but he's nice to me. That's what counts. Yeah, until you get married. And it doesn't take long. Sometimes only after a few days, but sometimes after a few months, maybe a year or so, the selfishness that he or she had with her own or, their, or his own family and friends will be exactly the same for you. But people never ask God for guidance, and they said, well... God is all-knowing, but I know more, and I will pick the person that I want. I'm not going to ask anyone, and that's the person that I love, and I'm attracted to that person, 
you know, is a real good looker or she's a good looker or whatever. And, oh, sorry, no, Nina got sick. And um, <laughs> based on that, they marry. And as St. John Chrysostom says, to, he actually gave advice to men and he said, when you marry a beautiful woman, well, know that, firstly, her beauty will wear out, which means even after a year, when you start seeing her insides, what, what she's really made of, then you won't be attracted to her beauty anymore because you're going to know that you're married to someone that's horrible. And not only that, um, uh, she, because other men will be looking at her, etc., well, really, will she be even your wife in the first place? Now, some might say, does that mean we marry someone ugly? <laughs> right? And uh, the answer to that is, if you marry someone who's beautiful or handsome, but you are marrying them not because of their looks, but because of their character and their morals and their spirituality, and it turns out that they are good-looking, okay. That's not. But when you're marrying someone just on their looks, then you're a sucker <laughs> because you're going to lose a lot, as, the, uh, as they say. So the last thing before I go on to the next one here uh, was one more. Um, I like this. I actually saw this in action. It was a couple. And the, the, the husband was saying to the wife, look, you, you leave it. I'll, I'll do, let's just say the dishes. I'll do the dishes. And then she said, no, but tomorrow you have to get up early for work. I'll do it. He says, no, but you've been up all night with the, um, with the children and you're really tired, let me do it. And she said, no, no, I'll do it. No, I'll do it, no, this and that. It was going back and forth. And I've mentioned this before, I call that a holy thing. You see, one was trying to alleviate the other. One of them's late or something happened and they're sleeping and the, and the other spouse will be quiet so they're not to wake up. Let them sleep and be really quiet. Well, today, they make loud noises on purpose to get them up so they can do work or serve them. These things are not nice. They're, to me, it's like a miserable existence. I call it dog-eat-dog type of thing. Number two, Elder Paisio said, try as much as possible to treat your wife spiritually so that between the two of you, uh, there would be love and mutual understanding. Strive for the same approach towards your children. A truly spiritual person has the habit of putting others first, as Apostle Paul says, Romans 12.10. The strong should bear the burdens of others so that the weak can rest and not have each one bear only his own burden. So that means that sometimes in a marriage, one of the couple could be sick, mentally, even mentally, physically, spiritually, and the other person who's stronger at the time picks up. That's what a marriage is about. And then sometimes it's the opposite happens where the other person's um, down and the other person will help. And I've seen that. It's very strange. Like I've seen couples where this person's going off, say the husband's going off, and the woman is through her prayers, through her support, through trying to help, asking for prayers, tries to lift the husband up again. And then the, other, the opposite happens. She's down and he's in a better position and helps and things. And, and, and that, that's a beautiful marriage. Always trying to help the weaker person. Always trying to help make the other person first. 
People say, I, I'm gonna, I want to find someone so they can love me. But Christ, when he came, didn't, he didn't, he said, no, you serve. You serve. He who wants, he or she who wants to be first, let him be servant to all. This thing of this, um, I want to be loved. And you ask, but how about you? Are you going to love anyone? Of course not. I just want to be loved. That's basically what's, what's, what's going on today. Why should I love anyone? It's a, I have to exert myself. Loving someone means I've got to serve them. Loving someone means I've got to care about them. It's too tiring. It's, a, it's enough work just taking care of myself. And that's why I need help for other people to take care of me and serve me. Number, uh, number three, Elder Paisius again, uh, he said, of great importance is how similar a husband and wife in their physical state. When one is weak and sick while the other is strong, then the stronger one must sacrifice himself or herself to the weaker one. And gradually, with the help of the stronger one, the weaker one becomes better. And when both are in good health, they can move forward once again. Number four, from Crisis in Our Midst, which is another book of a Russian elder whose name was, um, he was um, from the northern part of Russia. I think he died around the 40s, I'm not sure. Anyway, from his book, From Christ in Our Midst, it's at the back. They say that your husband drinks. He's writing to someone, to a woman. What should you do? Do not grieve, do not condemn him. You know everyone has weaknesses and faults. He too has weaknesses and faults, so learn from each other. Bear each other's burdens and thus fulfil the law of Christ. The Lord, the Lord give you wisdom. I ask God's blessing on all your family. So here is another example that sometimes in the marriage that a passion can come out. Now what people get mixed up with is that People who were worldly before change, they come to the church and they change their lives. And they no, they, don't, they no longer do the things that they used to do. Then they might get married or they're already married. Then with the pressures of marriage and life, what happens is that those passions that we used to have come out again. So if someone was an alcoholic or someone used to drink a lot before, then there's a high chance that they'll come back to that again. They'll be tempted. doesn't mean they're going to do it. They might do it. They might not. If someone used to, uh, uh, as a single person, have relationships with whoever they uh, came across, then the same temptation will come in the marriage where you're going to have that same thought to go and do that again. See, the passions don't die. They sometimes just calm down. Christ, God, he allows the passions to calm down because if he allowed the passions to be active, then we wouldn't be able to even come to church. We wouldn't be able to read a book. We wouldn't be able to do anything because the passions would be really... Uh, full power within us. So God allows these to come down. But they don't come down forever. They will come back later on. And that's what people don't understand. So they're leading a life, spiritual life, for say five years, ten years maybe, 
then all of a sudden they start getting tempted in some very horrible things of what they used to do years ago. And they go, oh, what's happening? What's happening? Um, I'm bad. And they, and they listen to the devil, which says, oh, there's no hope for you and you're off. And how can you go and tell the priest that, you know, you were a good example all these years? That's a sign of pride. We have to understand these things will come back. So when you get married or, or whatever, and then, there's the, and then you, you know, the person seems okay, that person seems okay, but once the marriage goes forward and the, and the pressures of marriage bring out the passions and you just deal with them in a spiritual way, we don't start going, oh, what's happening? Why have I got these things? Why have I got these thoughts? Why do I feel this way? Why am I inclined to go on the internet and do inappropriate things like I used to do when I was single? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? That's what happens. So, when one of the spouses is down, for example, one spouse might notice the other spouse is being too much in the computers, starts getting suspicious what's going on. It might not be him. The person might not be doing something which is inappropriate, just spending too much time. On the, net, on, the, on the web, just waste the time. Go there, look here, look there, look there, look there. Hours, wasting time, no, no speaking, no dealing with the family. The other spouse should say, this is no good, and start to put the foot down and say, this is no good. I know one woman who hides the plug of the computer, the, um, the wireless card. She hides it. Because she said, you only can have it when a certain time, at a, at, 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 when everyone's around. That, that card will not be in there um, when, uh, so that you can just be on there for hours and waste time. See, she was active. Now, some men might not allow that. But you can try, and some women might not allow it, but you can try. If you say to the person, look, I'm doing this for your own good, you are losing yourself. And we know now that because of the internet as well, that a lot of adultery that occurs is because of those websites of um, dating and meeting people and um, no, no responsibility type of things. And it's just, it's just like a madness. Now, we go to E, suffering with a difficult spouse. I read this last time. And St John Christum says, if you have a difficult wife... You must bear with her bravely. You must correct her faults with patience, like I just said. If you endure, God who is watching you will reward you for your patience. Your wife may also repent and be saved. We discussed all this last time. I'm just reminding you because it's going to help us as we go on. If she does not change or he does not change, you will not lose your reward for your patience. So when a person is patient with their spouse and at the end the spouse does not change, that person does not lose their reward. Saint Thomas's husband didn't change, but she got a big reward. Number two, Saint Cosmas of Italia taught the following as he was travelling through Greece at the time when a lot of the Greeks were converting to um, Islam. If you have a bad wife, you would be more fortunate than your neighbour who has a good wife because with patience that you show God will have mercy on you and will place you in paradise. I read that last time. So a person that's got a good spouse obviously gets a reward, but when you've got a 
not good spouse and you're suffering with that spouse, then you will receive more reward than a person who has a um, good spouse. That, of course, helps us. If people had in their minds salvation is the aim, that we're only going to be here a few years, then we wouldn't start to think and say, oh, I'm going to leave my spouse because I want to be happy, I want to have a marriage which is going to be like really wonderful and all these fantasies, and therefore I'm going to leave the person I'm with now to go and seek someone more because the person that I've got is difficult. But the saints don't think like that. They say, well, if you are suffering with a spouse and your marriage is not very good but you are patient, then you will receive a greater reward in the next life, which is forever. So people leave their proper marriages, their first marriages, they run off to get a second marriage, they can have a bit of happiness supposedly for the next 10 or 20 years how much they're going to be alive. However, did they ever think about the next life, where they're going to be forever? And that's what counts. People have forgot, people do not think about the next life. They only think about this life. I want to be happy in this life. I want to be loved in this life. How about the next life? Don't think about it. Again, St. Cosma says, no woman can be more virtuous than a woman who comforts and endures her husband. If your husband is bad, you should be more fortunate than a woman who has a good husband because you will receive a greater reward for your soul. And the same for the opposite. Does that mean that you endure bashings and things like that? Well, we're coming to that. We said that those things are um, extreme and the church allows someone to separate. But look, I, I had an example of a woman who rang me up. She was crying and she said to me that um, the husband just lost the mind a bit. I had some mental problems and um, they're in the car and he just started punching her head about three, four times and she had the bip so people can see it so she, he can stop. And I said to him, look, you, I said to her, you've got to ring the police because um, some, some men, um, uh, uh, they're scared of those things and that's the only thing that they, com that they comprehend. And sometimes that can calm them down if they know they're going to get in trouble. Some men are beyond, as you know. doesn't matter if you do AVOs, those um, violence orders. These men, some some men, they still go ahead and kill their spouse, and and the and the opposite, the wife still does it if she, if she's that way inclined. She said to me, "I'm going to leave him." And I said, "No. If you want, you can tell him to move out for a while because he's dangerous. Don't divorce." Now, some might say, "You're a bad priest. You're." supporting violence against women. Little do some of you know that those same women who actually do leave or whatever, later on they can come back and say, you didn't stop me um, and, and now I'm suffering even more. So I said that. Anyway, she decided to continue with him and it turned out that this man's got bipolar problems and he's got mental issues and demonic problems and things like that and um, calmed down quite a lot. And uh, guess what? The, um, they're actually, um, their marriage is actually going much better. 
but she wanted to leave him. And I always remind her of that. I always say, but you wanted to leave him. He goes, yeah, but I was, um, I was wrong. It's the same with, 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 with the woman can lose their mind too. Years ago, a relative of mine got married, very young, some distant, distant cousin. Um, I think she got married around 16 and here in Australia and, her, and she was married and she had a child with, this, um, with the man that she married. And what happened was that one day the man took off all his clothes and started running through the streets, jumping on cars and lost his mind. So what the parents decided is to ship him off to Greece, get rid of him as a dud. In other words, saying, oh, well, he's a dud, you know, he's no good, get rid of him. My father, who wasn't even in the church much, didn't, didn't know much, he says, don't do that. I don't agree with that. You shouldn't do that. And they basically said, no one's going to tell us what to do. And they got rid of him. They shipped him off back to, they went to send him off to Greece. And she had um, a couple of children, I think. And those children, uh, as they grew up, grew up, wanted to know about their father. And what happened was they went to Greece to, to seek him out. And he was married, remarried, normal, with children and a family. So he had some type of psychotic, some type of breakdown. I don't know what it was. Personally, I, I think it was living with that family because they were all fanaticals. Like, they were, like um, everything to them was a miracle. Like, oh, look, the icon moved and things. They were like crazy people. And I think that that's probably made him go mad. I mean, if it was me, I think I would do the same. And um, to, live in, to, to live in that type of environment, I think he broke down. I think the man had a breakdown. He was young. I, think, I don't think he was... He might have been 20, I don't know. And that's usually when people sometimes have breakdowns, dealing with issues. But anyway, he was in Greece, married, living normally. Now, how do you think her children felt about that? Elder Paisios was once at Philothel Monastery where he was a monk. And there was, an, there was a monk there called Spiridon, who the elder said acted crazy. And he was like, a, he says he was always like a fighter, always arguing, always like a crazy person, similar to the other one. And this, and um, God sometimes, it says, Elder Paisios says, God sometimes allows monks, especially monks who have the great schema, to become possessed by a demon so they can be humbled and saved and that's what happened to him. So if a monk doesn't listen to the elders, etc., then sometimes it's, that's the way that God will save them. He tried to jump off the balcony and do other crazy things, so they took him to a doctor for an examination. The doctors got together and declared that only God will be able to help this monk. One day, the elder says, one day I told him, I don't feel well. Let's go to the priest and have him read a prayer over me. In this way, I was able to get him to the priest to have an, the exorcism prayers read over him. I even asked the priest to read the prayers quietly so that the, that, so that the monk, Spiridon, would not know, um, wouldn't hear them, since if he did, he would get up and leave. As soon as, I, as we arrived, I kneeled down and said to, to the Spiridon, to the monk, kneel down with me. He stood there looking at me and said, if you don't feel well, it's not my fault. One day when he was ill, he called for me to come and pray. By the way, this person had gone so crazy that 
he demanded that people called him Elder Spiridon, not just Father Spiridon or Monk Spiridon. He wanted to be called Elder Spiridon. And if you didn't call him that, he would, he would go like a bit possessed. He, he was aggressive. So sometimes the monks just gave in to him to shut him up. And, and actually, he wanted to be called Elder Spiridon. One day when he was ill, he called, me, he, he called for me to come and pray. So I said the prayer with the prayer rope, making the sign of the cross and saying, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on Elder Spiridon. So Elder Paisius was going along with him, called him that because he knew he was going to react. And he said, forget Elder Spiridon, just call me Spiro. Now Spiro is just a, 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 um, a watered-down version, like we say Michael, Mick, and things like that. So he goes, so he, this man was so humbled at the end, he goes, I'm not even, don't even call me Spiridon, don't even call me Father Spiridon, forget about Elder Call me Spiro, like to put himself more down. Before, if you didn't say Elder Spiridon, he would get offended. Afterward, he went through a lot. He broke his leg and was confined to his bed, and he was humbled, and then God took his spirit. May God set everything aright for him. So Elder Paisius is saying there that even though this man was obnoxious, out of it, but at the end, God still, he stayed in the monastery, and God brought about his salvation. And the same thing in married, with married people. People say, oh, they'll never change. They'll never change. When, when women or men say that to me, I become very angry. They go, oh, he'll never change. How do you know? Oh, but how do you know? How do you know that God doesn't, might not send him a sickness and all of a sudden he repents and dies? Or he can just change. And that's happened a lot of times. And how do we know that, that as uh, St. Paul says, that the woman, by enduring, can save her husband, or the man enduring with the wife can save his wife, as, as we're going to read later on. A lot of times when someone leaves the marriage, they are causing that person that's left behind, who was meant to be saved together, to lose their soul. And God will ask, I got you together to be with that man or with that woman and yes you were going to suffer but at the end you would save yourself and your spouse and you left and you caused the loss the possible we don't know the outcome loss of the spouse the last section is called running ahead of your spouse this is a very good section it's about where you've got a couple where one becomes more spiritual than the other and that causes problems within the marriage. One could be still spiritual, but the other one's racing the head too much a bit. The following is a story concerning a newlywed couple and fasting. The husband was used to keeping the fasts, from probably from young. The wife, on the other hand, didn't keep the fasts as that was the way she was brought up. She didn't object to fasting, it's just that she wasn't used to it. When they put their problem to Elder Porfirios, he advised the husband as follows, you shall fast, as you always have, but don't talk about fasting to your wife. During times of fasting, you'll always keep your refrigerator full of food. What does he mean by that, full of food? He means full of? No, you don't. 
We don't put books in fridges. We, it, spiritual food means not, yeah, you got me. It, it means, uh, one sec. Non-fasting food. He said to him, you've got to have in there, full of food. Fasting food for you, non-fasting food for your wife. Let your wife eat, you can keep your fasts. Truly, the time came as the couple themselves later admitted that through following the advice of the older, the wife also started to fast. It seems she was a well-intentioned woman and wanted to agree and go along with her husband on the issue of fasting. But obviously, it took time. But some people are fanatical and they say, no, it's a sin. We can't have eggs in the fridge, nothing like that. It doesn't matter what the, sp- what the spouse they say, no, you're going to fast. Personally, when we got workers that come sometimes to the monastery to do things, and it's a fasting day, they're not orthodox. Well, we're not going to, I'm not going to, and even if they're orthodox sometimes, we don't impose on them. So we had some bricklayers there, the bricklaying, doing heavy work, and we'd say, you know, would you like a, um, like a, a, a snack of some buckwheat? They don't want that. That's to me, it's, I don't know, I don't, I don't, personally, that's me. I know other monasteries, they keep that. I just, um, and then what we did one day is um, we had um, the plumber was there, who's Greek, and he's some other apprentices, I think one was Serbian, all these people were there, and it was uh, Wednesday or Friday, whatever it was, and they, they said of themselves, he said to the apprentice, go and get some Eurosses, you know the Eurosses, the Greek ones, and um, even though the Turks think it's theirs, but so he went, they went, they got it, brought it back, and they were eating there. And I sat there, and they go, are you going to have some? I go, um, and it's Wednesday, I don't, that's it. I didn't say to him that you're going to go to hell, you, you, you know, how abominable you are, and all these type of things. That's, that's it. Later on, I spoke to him a little bit and said to him that what the farts are, and a, and a little bit like that. But they weren't church goers. We don't impose things on people. It's like fanaticism. So... Um, They ate their euros, they ate their chips, and I ate at the time air, because there was no because I had no food at the time to get it mine later on. So until so where are we up to now? So number two. There is only one thing we know, this is Father John Krestiankin again, there's only one thing we know without a doubt that we must fulfil our marital vows. But you, having led your husband to the altar, of the Lord, in the Orthodox Church obviously, and promised before God to love him, to be faithful to him and to obey him, are now breaking the obligations you took upon yourself. You need to patiently wait for spiritual understanding to sprout forth, to grow in your husband. See, this woman was upset because she was spiritual, but her husband didn't really understand spiritual things properly, and obviously she was pushing him, and the elder saying, don't do that. It, just like we came to, you know, I, how old was I? I was around 25 when I changed. But no one forced me. If someone came up to me when I was 23, 22, I wouldn't have wanted. I remember when I was at the, at the um, college one day, at the teacher's college there, and there was a, a fellow who was two years below me. I was in third year. He was in first year. He was a Greek, but a Protestant. 
I didn't know much in those days about religion. And he was talking about, and the Lord, and the Lord, and the Lord. I don't like those. I didn't like that. And I moved away from him. That, that my time hadn't come. We can't force someone to change. Until it comes, says the elder, you must give in to him. When you married, you have both had the same view of life. Don't run too far ahead of him now. That's beautiful, that part. What he's saying here is when you both got married, you both had the same view of life, meaning they were both worldly. They went to the church, they got married in the church, but they both had similar views of life. What happened was, after a few years, the woman became more spiritual and began to go ahead of her husband. And he said, the older saying, um, you have to understand that when he married you, you were this type of person. If you change too much and go too much ahead of him, then it's going to cause a problem in the marriage. Give in to him. Meaning, give in to things that aren't strictly against the church. Learn to preserve your family. Regain your husband's inclination towards you with sympathy and understanding. Make your husband feel close to you again using sympathy and understanding, using love. Don't shoo him away by you becoming a completely different person. And we're going to look at this. They talk, he talks about other things too. I had a fellow who was married to someone, they were both Protestant. He became orthodox. He became orthodox. He was baptised. His wife didn't. She stayed Protestant. But there was friction in the marriage because this guy was doing these fasts that made him look like the skeletons that they used to show us in the science um, school, in um, the science labs. He looked like a skeleton. He was fasting, praying, reading, con con continually orthodox things. And um, th there was all friction. I said to him, don't do a lot of those things. And plus you're fasting too much. You're going to, you know, obviously she's scared because look at the way you've become. Don't buy too many spiritual books. Don't do too much fasting. Don't pray in front of her. Don't talk about religion. Don't do this, don't do that. And see, and he said it improved. Until later on, he became fanatical again, and who knows if they're, if they're together. See, a little thing like that. Third one. Saint Father John again. You, you yourself should try to behave in such a way that fewer arguments would happen in the family. There is no sin in a hairdo if there be peace in the home. Joy, peace, long-suffering, love, they're always law of spiritual life. So what happened here probably is that she changed. She didn't want to do her hair like before as a worldly person. Then suddenly the contrast, the husband was noticing that he married that type of person and all of a sudden he's married, he thinks he's married to a nun. And that was disturbing the marriage. And he said, look, if you have to compromise to do your hair a little bit, you know, don't have to overdo it, to make him happy, then compromise and just repent in a way that, you know, you're not doing it because you want to do it, but to, to make the marriage a bit softer. See, that's not like a betrayal. It's not as if we're doing a big sin in front of God. It's something, obviously, women 
should not do that. That's strictly speaking, women should have long hair, they shouldn't dye it and things like that. But because of the fact that they were together and she looked not as if they married together and she already had grey streaks, but what happened was that they married and then she changed. So before she might have had blonde hair and because she dyed it, then all of a sudden now her head looks like a broom or a mop or something. And he just didn't like that. He was very, he was very upset. He goes, well, compromise a bit. But, but um, your husband loves you. He has already done so much in response to your religious feelings. So the husband is not against her being religious. But you run away from him in your yearning for God. Because you are supposedly wanting God, you're running so far ahead that you're leaving your husband behind. But forgetting that you only can be saved together. After all, you were married in the church. See, spouses are saved together. That's where it's bad, where one begins to change and then all of a sudden that person's life becomes completely disconnected from the other person. Go, oh, he doesn't believe. She doesn't believe. I'll just go to church. I'll read my books. I won't, do, I won't hang around because she's a pagan or he's a pagan. She doesn't believe or, and things like that. That causes problems. And he says, why are you running ahead supposedly towards God leaving your husband behind when really you need him to be saved. Your relationship with him is how you get saved, not separate. You need to live as is proper. But will anything be better if you force him into fornication? What does that mean? Sometimes when women drastically change and they become supposedly really um, spiritual, as they believe, they even don't want sexual relations. And that can cause the husband to fall with someone else. And he said, and he said that, you know, is that going to be good? Live loving him, giving in for now to his weaknesses and misunderstanding. Only with time can you gradually begin to accustom him to order in life, to spiritual order. After all, he needs to know the law of God for this. Until he has this knowledge, there's nothing to ask of him. That you can't. A person, when we were enlightened and said, I'm going to follow God's law, that was our decision, ourselves. No one forced us. And it's the same what he's saying. You can't force this per your husband to do that or your wife. And that's where a lot of friction, you see. So one becomes like the man that ran in the streets. I don't think he was in the church. His, his, his wife was and her, and, and, his, and her mother and they were fanatics. That's why I said the man went crazy. Number four, don't run, again, don't run too far ahead of your husband. There's another letter. When you began your family, you and your husband were of one mind in ignorance. Right? So that's what happens. People do get married. And someone came up to me and said to me, when I got married, I had nothing to do with the church. I got married in the church, but I had nothing to do with the church. I was proud and I lost my marriage. So, now you are departing from your husband and he's not yet able to understand for whom or what such changes have occurred in his wife. So the husband's like, 
dumbstruck, I think the word is, and saying, what's happened to the woman that I married? Your appearance should not change abruptly. Look at the discernment. Your appearance should not change abruptly right now from the appearance to which your spouse is used to. Doesn't mean we're going to, you know, some women wore clothes that were inappropriate. Well, you can compromise. You've got to start to um, uh, um, cover up. But covering up doesn't mean that you wear similar clothes to what I wear to make your husband have a heart attack. (laughs) Do not hasten to change externals. However, your inner direction should push towards prayer. In other words, don't change your externals too much, but within you, secretly, you can be praying. You don't have to go and tell him that you're praying. After all, your husband loves you. He went to church to, uh, to wed you. Now your main task is to preserve your family. Your heart will resist giving in to your husband, but you must. He's saying your heart will not want to submit to your husband because you want to do spiritual things or whatever. He says, but you must. The, the Lord sees your suffering and he forgives us more easily and readily than even our closest relatives and friends. And that one's very important. He's saying, even if you have to compromise by dressing some ways that aren't really as a Christian should dress or something like that for the time being, God will forgive you because you're not doing it because that's how you want to be, but you're doing it to save your marriage. And so therefore it's forgivable rather than if you are doing it because you like it. And you can compromise. You can start, as I said, covering up and changing a bit, but slowly. You can't go from that to that. And that's what happens even when children sometimes change. They, they change abruptly and the parents go crazy. So before the child could have been going watching TV and going out and um, going to clubs or whatever, and all of a sudden they're completely changed. See, when I changed, my parents didn't get shocked. Not that they were in spiritual people, but they didn't, I think they, they were happy. But that's not how other parents are not. They get upset. They think that the children are going to become sick or suicide or something like that. There's, like, there's a lot of things that the devil puts in their minds. They go, oh, if they become a spiritual, then one silly woman said, um, oh, my son, she was scared because her son changed and started going to church. And it was a silly thing. I think I've told you before. He goes, she goes, oh, she was scared that her son's going to become a priest because he was becoming religious. And she goes, he can't become a priest. I go, why? He goes, he's got blonde hair. (laughs) Number five, I am fulfilling your request for prayer. May the Lord give you the wisdom and patience to preserve your family and love within it. You do not need to become someone else other than the one whom your husband loved. You need to dress tastefully have a hairdo that suits you and everything else. After all, you are not a monastic. You and you... See, this is what happened in Russia, that when people people started coming to the church and became more more religious, this this is where divorces were occurring because one was going too much. And Father John is saying here, don't do that. 
You and your husband should have common interests. Do not upset him with your vainglorious and excessive religious practices. Like, in other words, he was actually saying to her that she's like a Pharisee and a fanatic. But rather observe good measure in all things and take his spiritual illness into consideration. He's saying to her, understand that your husband is not of the same mind as you. He's not progressed spiritually. He doesn't um, understand spiritual things. So therefore, don't cause problems. And then, and, and then he said, well, in a way, you're not very spiritual yourself because you're, a lot of your spirituality, supposedly, is all external because you never had inner life. See, how do we know if we've got proper spiritual life when we respect people's freedom? And how do we know when we haven't got proper spiritual life when we try to force people to lead lives that they don't want to lead? See, that's how we know. See, Protestants, you've got to change, you've got to do this. Or fanatical orthodox. You're not allowed to smoke. I remember once I went to a hospital with a person to go. Uh, this person used to visit. He was, you know, he was a religious person. And he went to, we went to visit, and he, he used to go and visit orthodox people. We came up on the lift, I was a lay person, and he op- the door opened, and I don't know how he knew, it's like he had these supersonic eyes and he just looked at this room, which had a table in the middle, it was around four beds. He walked up to the room, picked up a magazine, and ripped it, because it was like a, one of those men's magazines, and he ripped it into pieces. And the men started going, hey, what's going on? Like they got all upset. And he just walked off. So the nurse came up to him and said, you know that, you know, you've got to be careful. You shouldn't do that because someone can throw you out the window. But this guy didn't care because he was a, he was a fanatic. He thought he was like the saints. They used to go and knock down the statues. But only some did that. And they were inspired by God. So we can't force people. But rather observe good measure in all things and consider his spiritual illness. Pray for him secretly. Pray for him secretly. And Elder Porfirio used to give the same advice. For people who are a little negative or negative a lot, don't say, I'm going to pray for you. They don't like it. You, you make them, you aggravate them. Parents, when they're praying for their children, don't say, I'm praying for you so you can stop doing those bad things by doing drugs, for example. When those people become worse, he said, pray secretly. But why do we say it? Why do we like to say that we're praying for someone? Because of vainglory. I'm praying for you. And through my prayers, God's going to hear and you're going to be saved because now you're a pagan. Continues on. In a word, preserve peace and love in the family, patiently condescending, in other words, giving in to his emotional weakness. Faith will come to him in answer to your labours and wise behaviour with him in all situations. So in other words, he's saying, if faith does come to him, it will be out of your labour, but proper labour, not fanatical, not trying to force him, not you know bothering him. Your, your adopted son will learn about his natural mother when he grows up. So they must, have had a, they must have adopted a child. And she was asking him whether they, sh- he should, they should tell the child that he's adopted. 
And it says here, your adopted son will learn about his natural mother when he grows up. Otherwise, it will be too difficult for you to keep him in line. I like that because today all the psychologists say, you've got to tell the child everything. So from three years old, you tell them, just this. now what mummy did is she bought some sperm from overseas. She brought it over frozen and then she uh, impregnated herself. And that's how you, who's my father? It's not important who your father is. You've got mummy. <laughs> but that's the new stolen generation. You know, the first, the way they used to say, the stolen generation were the ab Aboriginals when they took them by force and gave them to white people to grow up. If they were part white, I think they're right, they were part white. So that's a stolen generation and now that's a big disaster. The other stolen generation was when women that were young, girls that were young and pregnant, a lot of institutions like the Catholic Church would force them to give up their children for adoption saying that you're not married, you're, you know, you're young and it's better for the child to go and they were forced to give up their children. That's a stolen generation. In other words, those people uh, trying to find their parents now and things like that, that's a disaster. Because some of those children, some of those young girls wanted to keep their children. But they said, no, 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 it's not good. The Catholic Church was well into that. And the new stolen generation is going to be all these kids that have been conceived in these IVFs and, and don't even know who the father is, who the mother is. So one woman's got a sperm from someone else, a neck from someone else, but she's the incubator. And, and uh, it's a mess. And these kids that are growing up now don't know who they are. So your son will find out when he grows up that he's been adopted. Um, otherwise, it would be hard for you to keep him in line. In other words, he'll get disturbed. Like your husband, he cannot properly tolerate, put up with, in other words, your religious practices, which are as yet external. So Father John's saying to her, like you're driving your husband mad, but you're also driving your adopted son mad with your fanaticism. May the Lord preserve and help you. And the last one, short one, and the last of our section is, you are a person with a family. Everything within you should be in submission to your fulfilment of a married person's vows. Therefore, no monastic life is permitted for you as it would irreparably destroy your family. So I don't know whether it's a woman or a man. Um, it's a woman who wrote to Father John and said that she wants to leave her family to become a nun. And he said to her, that's not for you. You made promises to, to, to be married and you made promises to take care of your children. Your job is to stay there, not to run around and go to monasteries. You have turned your husband away from the church through your excessive enthusiasm. What does St. Paul call that? Zeal without knowledge. Not all zeal is according to God. This means that you need to change your outlook. Stop what you're doing and change your outlook. Don't be external. Spiritual life can be, it has to be more inner. And inner can be a secret. You don't have to show off in front of your husband or your son and things like that to show that you're religious. I don't know, all these examples were with women. Uh, that's the ones I found, but I'm sure that there are men who are um, the same. But it seems to be more a woman thing that they they change and that they become fanatical and destroy their family. One woman here in, in Sydney, she was married. She had four to f 
five children. The, the youngest one was a few months old, one year, five months, six months, I don't know. She left the all because her husband was with the new calendar Greek church and she wanted to go with the old calendar Greek church. So she left her family because they were unbelievers in her mind and she went and became a monastic. That's um, Now the next talk will be about um, marital relations, very important because people are confused of, about uh, sexual relations within a marriage, very important to do, and I'll be reading some canons there too. And then we're going to talk about when someone tries to separate the couple, and you know who they usually are, mummy dearests, and then we go to magic and married couples, right, not all mothers, but mother-in-laws and things, magic and married couples, I've got a very big section on that, of how, marriage, how magic is used within marriages to separate or things like that. And then we're going to talk about adultery and we're going to talk about when you're married to an unbeliever, like a person who's completely unbeliever, like people in Russia, like what we were saying before, they were both married civilly and then one converts and becomes orthodox. Um, some people ended up marrying, they were married, they were both atheists. One changes, the other one's still an atheist. We're going to talk about married to a man or, um, or uh, to someone who's of another faith, like mixed marriages. We're going to speak about contemplating divorce, those who are contemplating divorce, those who are, uh, what else we got here, yeah, divorce. We're going to talk about adultery, those who have committed adultery. And we're going to talk about the consequences of that and what should people do if their spouse has fallen into adultery? Should they forgive them? Should they tell them to go? And things like that. So that's a lot of what the other talk's going to be about. Obviously, we didn't have time to do 70 pages, but I'm happy with what we did. I won't ask for questions because I didn't talk too much. The food's ready. Everyone stand up. Christ is risen from the dead by death, has he traveled in death and knows in the grace of bestowed life. Truly the Lord is risen.